Previously on Pontific Weekly. I don't have a very well-honed gaydar. What is it with Albus sucking on the candy like he's a man gone insane every time something <laughs> All this time, we just thought it was innocent little lemon drops. But The sherbet lemons have been infused with hashish. <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh my god, they're pot lemon drops! See, Julia, see what happens when you turn your gaydar on? Turn on your gaydar, too. They're tart and sweet. Now we know why Albus is always hungry. He's always calling for tea because he's, he's smoking too many lemon drops. <laughs> you know how in house he carries the pill bottle in his jacket and every once in a while he pops off the lid and he chews down a couple of Vicodin. Lemon <laughs> drops. <laughs> <laughs> You know, he's like, oh, shit, I'm having a bad day. I need a few Vicodin. I can just see how this has got some storage in his robe. <laughs> I'm, I'm seeing, turning into a girl. Yeah, I'm seeing Queer Eye for the straight guy. <laughs> I just totally got the visual of, like, Cayenne and Harry standing in the bathroom. And Cayenne's going, so, Harry, what's your shaving process? <laughs> Can you see him peeling off his shirt and waxing his back? Can you see, oh my god, can you see, like, Carson trying to dress him? Carson would always have to, like, strip everybody down to their underwear and, like, make some sort of comment about how hot they are. Just, like, see him doing that for Harry. They're waiting in the kitchen so they can make shellfish. (laughs) (laughs) The idea of Harry being manscaped. My what uncle him? is acquiring a donkey. Like, yeah, my father-in-law is going to give it to me. He's since discovered it, it will make an excellent guard animal, so it's going yeah. to guard the goat. They just have to drive it up from North Carolina, and then he will have a guard donkey. My friend Schneer Zolman would like to move to Israel, where he will train pack turkeys. So whenever somebody comes to the front door to, like, date his daughters, he wants to train the turkeys so that the turkeys should attack the boys. How would the turkey know that the boys had bad intention? And now... Mike has this really bad habit, and we've talked about this before, but Mike has got this really, really bad habit of buying people things. A long time ago, he sent me A Game of Thrones, the first book in Assault of Ice and Fire. So it sat around for a while because, you know, I'm busy and I have things to do. And then at one point, I needed mental stimulation of some other sort, and so I picked it up, and it caught me in the first couple of chapters. And the next thing you know, it's like Battlestar Galactica all (laughs) over again. So so he bought me this one book, and then I had to go directly to Barnes & Noble. Do not stop stop in Pasco. Do not collect your $200. Do not stop at the jail. Don't get your community chess card. You go directly to Barnes & Noble, and you find the next three books. I go to Barnes & Noble because I'm not in the mood to wait. I'm going to drive, and I'm going to get immediate gratification. I'm going to get the books right now. I'm not waiting. There's not going to be any shipping. There's no mail involved. I'm just going to go buy them. And they only had the next two. And then then, like within a week, I had to go search out the last one. It was like crack cocaine. I needed the last <laughs> damn book. And so I read the book and I inhaled it. And then I started all over on book one. And amongst the time, you know, he sent me this this first book of A Song of Ice and Fire. He sends me this other package full of damn books. And he's like, you know, these are all really great books, you know, and they're all the, kind of this genre that I like. I think you're really going to enjoy these books. And just whenever you get a 
chance, just whenever you get a chance, just I don't even care if you like them. If you if you hate them, trash them, give them away. I don't care. I'm like, you know, whatever, Mike, you know, I will get around to them. But thank you very much. You're the kindest man I know. So I read this series and I'm just like, I'm like Battlestar Galactica all over again. I'm having the bins because I don't have anything else to read. And he says, well, you you should read Name of the Wind. To the wonder of that world through many plans, and we'll never let go of all the ones we've made our friends. And they'll say it's only a podcast, but we know it's much more than that. A community all of its own Where we even have our own sorting hat Where the hosts are all our friends And the stall is told by Jen We'll always laugh before the end Part of it we please where the story never ends. And welcome back to Barfic Weekly. This is Ryan. I'm Jen too. Mike. Tim. I'm Scott. I don't know how that happened, but in the short time Tim has been with us this evening, Mike taught him how to introduce himself. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Because now we just... Tim present. Tim is known also on the Pofo forums as Nanook, I believe. I pronounce it Nanook. Nanook. That might be your accent. Accent. I'm from Arizona. You can have an accent in Arizona. I apparently have a Boston accent. So Arizona's like, a thick accent, man. John McCain doesn't seem to have an accent. He's the only Arizona. He's not from Arizona, though. He just lives there. He was born in the Panama Canal zone. Do they have an accent in the Panama Canal? Latino. <laughs> He lived, like, in ten different military bases. I was just, well, this is like how George Bush Sr. is supposedly from Texas. The man's from Connecticut, but whatever. I was going to say malaria, Gen 2, but if you want to go with Latino, that's fine as well. Okay. <laughs> Here's the deal, everybody. We are here to begin our discussion on Dumbledore's Army in the Year of Darkness by Van Fiction. Van Fiction right now is breathing into a brown paper bag. He was very excited about us covering the, his fic on the Oh, yeah. Plus, we talked to him. As everyone knows, I've said this many times, I'll throw these chapters on my iPod. I'll listen to it at work or while I'm in the car whatever. I had a few minutes, so I started reading chapter one at home one night while I was doing some editing. And I read the first three chapters, and I'm like, oh my god. Like, it literally grabs you from the first paragraph. I'm, I'm driving the other day. I'm in the Wendy's parking lot. Now, the thing about Wendy's I don't like is <laughs> you go, you, okay, I'm at Wendy's, and you never know what size beverage to get. <laughs> So, because what they do is the small is 59 cents, the medium is 68 cents, the large is 69 cents, and the extra large is 72 cents. Now, I'm thinking there could be a nuclear attack in five minutes. I could have to restart civilization. I could be the war of Roslyn of the war. Like, I could have to do it by myself, and I may need the water. So, I'll always get the largest size available, thinking to myself, I can last two years on this, if necessary. Because I can recycle my own urine if I don't know what I'll do. 
So I get the large Coke. The thing is the size of one of those orange cones that you see on the side of the highway flipped over. So I've got the damn thing in my car, in my cup holder. It looks like I have a vase next to me. So I'm like holding the thing with my right hand. Like I have my arm fully around it like I'm holding a small child. And I have my food in my left hand. And I've got my cell phone kind of perched on my shoulder. And I'm driving with my foot. And I'm calling Gen 2 to be like, what the hell is wrong with you? I'm listening to Dumbledore's Army in the Year of Darkness by Van Fiction. And, like, I love the damn thing. And it's, it's one of the stories that definitely grabbed me from the beginning. So I, I don't want you to think I, I nearly crashed because of my love for the story. It was actually the massive drink from Wendy's, which I am still drinking at the time. And that was... Uh, I was Three days ago. That was Tuesday. Today we're recording this on a Thursday, so... <laughs> And I have to tell you, it's the best 20 cents I ever I ever spent in my life. And um, I, I will, when I eventually die someday, I will cremate myself and, and store my ashes in the Wendy's <laughs> container. Um, sorry. I just, little... I just don't understand why everybody just keeps, like, bringing me up and saying, Chen, this is, like, the best story. Thank you for picking this wonderful, great story. Well, you have to understand. Because it's awesome. It's, it's a very good story. Well, here's the deal. It's a very good story. Now, when you look at the other stories that we've picked on the podcast, we have a lot of AU stories that we picked. We have a lot of canon-esque stories that kind of follow the traditional Harry begins fifth year, he's very sad, Sirius died, gets to school, they're going to have another Yule Ball because it worked out so well last year that even though it's not the Triwizard Tournament, we're going to have a Yule Ball just for the hell of it and call it the Yule Ball, even though it's not really a Yule Ball, but the readers will understand it if we call it the Yule Ball, and then Harry will ask Ginny and Ron will ask her. And they kind of have like the same basic plot. <laughs> So I'm like, oh, look, Harry's sad. I've never read this before. So, number one... This is the first is. post... Deathly Hollows Fair. Have we covered one more, but the author at the time just kind of made it a canon story? No, I mean, this is the first post-canon Deathly Hollows. Well, it's not post-canon. It's actually... It's, 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 no, she means post-canon written. Yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah and, it, and it takes... Well, the thing, too, with it is, like, for example, when you watch a show like Battlestar Galactica... You didn't think I was going to start there that early, did you? When you watch a show like that, no. you know, holy crap... The world's about to end. Like so, there's that anticipation that you know this is not going to end well. It's like when you watch a Civil War story that takes place in the South, and, and the protagonist is a hardworking Southern soldier. You just know it's not going to end well for him. You know, it, we know what's going to happen. We know when the story starts, the Colin will die. We know when the story starts that they're not going to get Gryffindor's sword. We know when the story starts, the Neville will have a lot of scar tissue by May. So we kind of feel that anticipation because we know how it ends, but we don't know why it gets there. It's very very much like the Babylon 5 archetype I talk about. Or how. Possible. Or how. We don't know what, we know where they're going to end. We don't know how they get to that point, which is the excitement factor. And the cool thing about that plot too is it lets the author throw in things that we never would have considered but make perfect sense. And then when you read, you know, the canon again, you can be like, oh, well, you know what? I'm going to assume that happened in there too, because that makes sense. So it, it kind of adds that layer where fan fiction becomes canon in the, in the, you know, mind either reader. The thing that turned me on about this fic, why I wanted to choose it. First, I'm really into canon. I mean, I like canon stories. I like AU stories. I read AU stories. But the ones that grab me the most are, are canon stories that are really, really well written. This one is really well written. 
fan fiction. His name is Andrew. He's done an amazing job with the story, just to begin with. This is how I saw Deathly Hollows happening in my head. This is not the 12-year-old scholastic version of what happened in the school while the trio was gone. This is how I really imagined that it really would have happened. And yeah. no no one has really written it in this kind of graphic detail and been able to pull it off and make it compelling and compassionate and still be to keep the angst high but not so high that you feel like at the end you know that you're you're ready to throw it across the room because it's like you just can't stand another minute of hanging you know well, you it's, just- so, it's so hard just it's so easy let me just say it that way it's so easy to screw up because you yeah. can take it way too far. Like we were just reading uh, when a lioness fights, and and I didn't participate in a lot of the podcasts because honestly, it just wasn't my thing. But there were scenes that were incredibly graphic, you know, detailing awful assaults and rape, and that's what Death Eaters are going to do, sure. But it t- you can take it so far through the literary process that it's no longer Harry Potter anymore, and you don't care to read it, which is unfortunately what really happened with me. But like you just said, Gentoo, you have to not make the Death Eaters pansies. They can't be. You you have one hour because no one can hear <laughs> but you also don't want to make it like what was the mel gibson movie about the death of jesus that i wouldn't see because it was like 18 passion of the christ it was, yeah it's like passion of the christ like i i submit to the fact that they probably beat him many times so i don't actually need to see them do it if JKR was going to write a companion piece to Deathly Hollows about what happened in the school, and she was going to do it so that she didn't have to publish with Scholastic, this is how I would see that her vision would be about what happened. I think it's the only story that you can really tell if you want to stay one, entirely canon-esque, and two, talk about characters that we care about. You could do a Marauder story, and I could be totally canon and it could totally not contradict anything else and still tell a fresh figurated story but no one cares about the marauders as much or i shouldn't because... say that but i don't care <laughs> because we don't know what remus was like 15 years ago so you can kind of guess and you can kind of make him your own character we don't know who scorpius will be or who rose will be because was joking on the podcast a few weeks ago you could write rose as the most promiscuous student at hogwarts or you could write her as being the most nerdy bookworm and both are fine because we don't know this is seamus and this this is Ginny and this is Neville and we know they have this amazing story and you can tell the story just through this one year and not make up a thing plot wise if that makes sense you know that, that couldn't possibly have happened and you can tell a really great story about characters we care about so I think this is this is like the obvious you know when Deathly Hallows was coming out everyone said you know what's going to happen to fan fiction when it's out well you know if Harry dies we'll bring him back to life there, there, there were so many areas that we didn't really need to have fan fiction stories written in because Joe did a really good job this was the one that the story was left you know just out there and you knew you had to tell it I think the fact that there's so much you can play with in Deathly Hallows owes a lot to the source material uh, in a good way in a good way Deathly Hallows gives you a whole lot of new stuff to play with. It introduces the idea that, hey, you know what? There's actually a separate wizarding culture with separate kid stories and separate historians. And it leaves just little bits of what's going on in the outside world. 
that you spend a lot of time guessing at. What's the order doing? What are the other Potter Watch episodes like? Uh, what's going on back at Hogwarts? Is there anything going on between Snape and the Dumbledore portrait? And it gives you so much to play with. And I can't help wondering if she had that in mind when she was writing it. Give the fans a lot to speculate about. I wanted to open up a particular theme that I was excited to talk about all day. I, I know it's maybe not the major theme, but I do think it's a major theme, and that's the um, Snape-Neville relationship in this. And keep in mind, I haven't yeah. finished the fic, so I don't know exactly where the author is going anyway. A couple of things. I don't know if I'm the only one doing this, but I, I think their relationship is gi- in this fic is given so much more depth because we know the truth about Snape before we start reading. And so as I'm reading this fic, I know in my head that Snape's a, quote, good guy, or at least that he's on Harry's side. You know, He wants to defeat Voldemort. So as I'm reading this, and I'm getting to the parts you know where they're whipping Neville and Ernie, for instance, I'm thinking in my head first on the one hand how much of what snape is doing is sort of calculated like is he actually thinking in his head that i'm going to purposely go over the top here because it's going to push the students into sort of the pro harry potter camp and how much and of this works. is genuine but you know like this is what i'm asking myself through the whole time as i read every single snape neville confront confrontation is how much of this is snape acting versus how much is a genuine emotion and how much of this is snape because snape has to walk this careful line and you and i didn't think when i read deathly house i never thought in detail about this line but this fic really emphasizes it for me the idea that he has to be you know the school's rebelling and he has to maintain his favored status with voldemort but at the same time he has to try to protect the students and help them and so how does he walk this line where in order to be voldemort's favorite he has to be cruel but he wants voldemort to lose and the one thing i'm i'm interested to see is i think i don't know if the author does this but i do think the fic will be much stronger if we see it some point where without Neville doesn't have to recognize it as such, but we as the reader should be able to see without ambiguity Snape doing something to help Neville or help or help Dumbledore's army. In that, so far, what we see is we read these scenes, and as I, and me as the reader, in my own sense, I have no idea. Like I debate with myself back and forth how much of this is a plot by Snape to sort of help Dumbledore's order, but Dumbledore, I mean Dumbledore's um, army by being too extreme. How much is genuine anger? How much is him being back? to a corner and he has to act to appease Voldemort and I'm unsure through all of his actions in these first six six chapters which of those three each of these are and it could be any of them for good reasons and so I do want to see at some point in this story even if Neville doesn't recognize it as such that I as a reader can go oh this is Snape taking a risk and taking a sacrifice specifically to help Dumbledore's army and again that's another reason why this is such a good pick because you feel that way you Mm -hmm. wonder that because that's the same way you felt in canon. You went all the way through all the books wondering about what line he took and what side of the fence he was going to be on and wondering, you know, who was he protecting or, you know, was he trying to keep up his relationship with Dumbledore or with, with Voldemort? And and you're doing the same thing in this fic. I mean, he's automatically pulled your emotion for Snape right in and put it right in the same spot. And it's interesting, too, because, like, look at the scene when we're in the Forbidden Forest and and Remus shows up, and Remus plays the part of the traitor, you know, I want them for myself, he takes them off, and the minute he's out of earshot of Greyback, okay, listen, you need to do exactly what I say, I'm going to get you out of this. And he instantly reveals himself to be the undercover spy. Now, let's look at Snape when he's in the Great Hall with Neville, when Neville's trying to vandalize the Great Hall with Cedric Diggory's name and so forth. Snape is under the impression that it's Harry and Polyjuice. Okay, you're Snape, you're Dumbledore's spy, you're at Hogwarts, 
and you presume that you're in company of Harry Potter. Well, does he really presume that for more than like five seconds, though? Or is that but just the like thing, a though, is he assumes it's Harry, and I have no doubt in my mind he would have beat the crap out of Harry there. He doesn't seem to go easy on Harry. He doesn't seem to let Harry go when he thinks it's Neville. You're presuming he thinks that Neville is leading the resistance, which maybe Snape thinks he's a bumbling idiot and doesn't have it in him, or maybe Snape actually sees that Neville's like you know a, a capable guy. He doesn't uh-huh. pull punches. And in the scene near the end of tonight's chapters, the scene where they try and steal the Gryffindor sword, he takes them into custody. He 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 takes them, and he does. But he whips them half to death, for that matter. Uh, does he whip them half? No, not for no. the sword. Clear burn. It was confusing because there were some flashbacks um, in there where Neville was. Cli- I'm listening on my text reader, and it's like Neville's. No, no, this, the wall. this is he whips he whips Neville half to death for the um, for the Cedric, Cedric Diggory's name. But that one, Neville, in in front of the entire Great Hall, walked up and said, you know, punish me instead. So that one was a little bit hard for him. But uh, you know, but here's the thing. As, as far as we know... The um, I Am Spartacus scene. Yeah, as far as we know, Snape captures them in his office. I don't know if anyone else is aware of the fact that Snape captures them, but Snape doesn't, you know, accidentally trip and let them get away. He grabs them and sends them into the Forbidden Forest. Now, maybe he knows Lupin's in there, or maybe he doesn't, but that was one thing I was looking for. It doesn't seem at all that Snape is pulling punches, and the question I ask myself is, we know he's doing this to save Harry for Lily. This is his debt to Lily. This is what he's going to do for Lily. He doesn't care about Harry. I don't think he cares about Dumbledore. I don't think he cares about you. Wait, that's not true, though. But what, what I mean is, he's doing this for Lily, and I think that if, sort of. if not, well, he's doing this for his own reasons. Well, do you think he didn't mean his promise? He makes that promise to Dumbledore that he will protect the students in the school as best as he can. Do you not think he sincerely meant that, then? Is that oh, what no, you're saying? I think, no, yeah. Th- yeah, but he's also willing no, to I throw think. Harry and James to Voldemort so long as he can possibly get Lily on the rebound. Yeah, I don't think for a second that he's... Do- let, me, let me rephrase. If Lily had not been someone that Snape cared so deeply about, I don't think he would have ever made the promise in the first place to Dumbledore. I think his motivation... I think his motivation and the reason the Deathly Hallows ended with a victory for the good guys was because they were lucky enough to have Snape over a barrel. Snape loved Lily. Snape will do it for Lily. Snape will make promises in Lily's name. It's all about Lily. And I don't think for a second that Snape would have helped Harry to the extent that he did, if not for Lily. And I don't think it has anything to do with Harry. I think it has to do with the fact that Harry just so happens to be Lily's son. So, for example, I don't know if he would have gone easier on Neville. If Remus Lupin was the headmaster and he was the converted Death Eater werewolf, I think Remus would have actively tried to help the best he could. I think he would have smuggled wands in. I think he would have smuggled food in. I think he would have done whatever he needed to do from his position to help. Like, he would have been, like, the person in the Underground Railroad who, who who holds people in their basement, you know? In Snape's defense, right off, he couldn't not, by beating them, by following through, by remaining a Death Eater, by doing what he did, by just mm-hmm. remaining as he was, he was protecting the students because he had to keep up appearances. So he couldn't do anything less than what he did because... Was keeping if, a leash on the caros. Right, because if he, for some reason, 
would have been pulled from headmaster. What happened there that year, that would have been like grammar school, I think. There would have been a lot more executions and, you know, just outright torture. I don't know. And I think they respond to Ryan, if I may. I think the difference when you look at, say, a Remus and a Snape is that Remus's motivations are based on his caring about the individuals, whereas Snape's motivation is about caring for the greater whole. Like, I look at what Snape does, and I don't think Snape has any particular deep emotional, you know, connection to any of these students. But what I think is maybe that he's thinking more longer term and more larger term, where like, okay, if I have to beat Neville and Ernie, but that lets me shelter the other kids, and maybe that'll also not only must be shelter them, but that'll help make them go together and like form Dumbledore's army. I think he views that as a worthy sacrifice or like, you and know, something, as a just trade. It's hard to tell, but you can argue that letting Filch horsewhip them instead of turning them over to the Caros was actually a merciful choice because the Caros, they're entirely insane and you have no idea what they would do. Yeah. Well, I you know trust- that they were going to live through a horse whipping. Yeah. Essentially. I mean, if that had been Harry in the Great Hall and Snape were there, I think he would have taken Harry into custody and I don't think he would have broken cover and I don't think he would have accidentally let Harry escape or overpower him or I don't think he would have told Harry at that point he was actually working for Dumbledore. I think Snape was going to play that role all the way to the end and try and see how things worked out in the end whereas someone like Remus I think would always be looking and I mean Remus in particular. I'm just using him as an example because he's the only other um, pretended spy in this so far. Um, I think that someone else, their, their, their full focus would have been on how can I help in the short term where Snape is more of a long-term thinker. I do want to just hit you guys up for one question before we get into the chapters. This is an issue I have with Deathly Hallows. You've got the government and you've got the Death Eaters. The Death Eaters are the mob. The Death Eaters are the terrorists, whatever you know, terminology you want to use. In Deathly Hallows, I was never very clear. My, my, my take on it was this. Voldemort takes over the ministry behind the scenes. And there's there, there's a puppet minister. And the reason there's a puppet minister is the people don't, in my judgment, directly know that Voldemort is in control of the ministry. They think, I can't remember the guy's name. but the, the, Thickness. Highest thickness. 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 Yeah. So, so, great name. So, Thickness <laughs> is running the ministry. And, you know, Voldemort's lieutenants are in, you know, positions of, of considerable influence. You know, and obviously we have convicted Death Eaters teaching at Hogwarts. So now you've got Death Eaters going through, you know, you know, ransacking the borough. You've got Death Eaters on staff at Hogwarts. So it's a little confusing for me to, to recognize, okay, does everyone think everything's fine? We've got the, the Ministry battling those Death Eaters on our behalf, or do they know very clearly that the Death Eaters are in control? And the reason I ask is you've got Snape at school saying, you know, the Dark Lord wants these short courses taught, and the Dark Lord this, and the Dark Lord that. It's very, very evident. You've got Death Eaters walk on the streets of Hogsmeade. It's definitely clear that there's an occupation. I think it was clear that my impression from canon is that this was sort of it was sort of a veneer, but everyone, unless they were incredibly dense, understood what was going on. That it's sort of you know there being a minister of magic was just sort of like a bland justification for Voldemort. So like people could have an ex- people like say like a Percy sort of person could have an excuse to go along with it, like almost sort of like how when you have like um, dictators like Mussolini take over, they leave the king in charge. Like the king is technically the head of 
fascist state of fascist Italy, but everyone knows it's Mussolini. I didn't get from Deathly Hallows that Joe Citizen knew that Voldemort was in charge. I think they certainly understood that Muggleborns were no longer equal. I think they certainly understood that the new minister and the new administration had different, um, you know, tendencies, you know, ideologically speaking. But I always got the sense Voldemort wasn't trying to be an emperor. He was trying to control from behind the scenes. And had Hogwarts have fallen, you might have seen Voldemort on the big high throne somewhere. Well, I think he was definitely using sort of a velvet glove sort of approach, which is the uh, which is the canon justification of his whole one hour thing that he's trying to not be, you know like half bloods are include, protected and all that sort of stuff, and it's kind of a, a more indirect. But, but I, I'm pretty sure there's even a line in Deathly Hallows from Mister Weasley where he says basically that everyone with the brains looking at what's going on and, and puts together what's really happening here. Yeah. I, was I mean, there are, even in Canada, there's Death Eaters walking around the Ministry of Magic, you know, in charge calling the shots. Yeah. Please. That's the thing, and that's a canon issue. So I was surprised when when Snape actually said the Dark Lord has built this curriculum himself, and I'm picturing him at home making his study plans. But, um, <laughs> you don't see a lot of it. You yeah, don't but, see a lot of it. Like, I think that's another issue you could explore if you wanted to play with it. Did did the other did like Ireland and France have refu- issues with incoming British refugees? Yeah, but that's a real world. I'd kind like of. to see it addressed because one thing I'm going to give uh, Andrew within fiction or wherever I'm calling him, you know, Deadwood Pecker whatever he goes by the story takes itself very seriously and and this has been something that i always look for in fan fiction like i know when we covered living with danger for the first time one of the things i said about it at the time was it seems like they're trying to hide from everybody this is like this is a family on the run but it seems like they're very open about where they are and they're not trying to hide themselves so it didn't seem like in that case the story was living by its premise so so that's something i always look for in this story these are kids who know and it said very clearly by neville in the beginning and it's a great scene. These kids know we are here for the for the next year until we graduate or however long until we graduate. They want to recruit us. They're not going to kill us. But as soon as we're out of here, we are going to get picked off one by one. So we are literally soldiers. And I think that's so good because it's, you know, during Order of the Phoenix, you think this is the worst you could possibly get this bitch is in charge of the school. Umbridge was an evil person, but she wasn't ideologically evil. She was power-hungry, she was anal-retentive times 30, but she wasn't a Death Eater. Whereas, this is now full-scale occupation Death Eaters who have a, you know a specific agenda or in charge of the school and they're not just going to carve words in our hands they're going to kill us and we need to kill them first and this is like full-scale warfare which number one it, it raises it one to a whole new level two it takes the plot tremendously seriously because it raises the stakes and number three it's really 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 easy to screw it up from you know as the author he has put a lot of thought into this universe. He's written on his live journal in a couple, in a couple live journal communities that he runs about how much thought he's put into individual characters, characterization, even the way the government works in his yeah. universe. And he's he's drawn art, he's written music, he's done all kinds of stuff. Well, Speaking really- of art, if anybody doesn't have it, I'm going to copy this into the window. He is an amazing fan artist in his yep. own right as well. Mm-hmm. I'm going to copy a couple things, and one of them is just his LJ art page. And the, the second one I'm going to copy in is a link for the chapter the chapter art that he did for this so some it's just some you know what he would have done you know for the chapter art and they're great little 
great little illustrations. I'm going to check that out here. The one thing I just want to say, um, then I'll give up the floor here, is that I've read stories in the past where Harry is the anointed successor to lead the Order of the Phoenix after the death of Dumbledore, for example. So you've got a 16-year-old kid leading the Order. And there was actually a, a, a story I read once where there, a chapter ends with Snape saluting Harry, saying, what are your orders, sir? <laughs> It's a sixth-year story. I mean, yes, there, it's warfare, but it's so easy to, to, to get melodramatic with it and really overdo it. There was a moment in one of the chapters. It was when th- there was a scene with Terrence the Slytherin, um, and when he and Neville have what's a great scene. Um, in, I forget if it's in the rumor requirement of the common room. And Ginny nearly goes after him for being a Slytherin, and, and Neville screams at her, Lieutenant Weasley. And I, I'm a Star That was fan, in the so rumor requirement. That was in the rumor requirement. So it jumps out at me like, Lieutenant Weasley. And, and it, and it seemed awkward to me because it's because they've been friends for years. It just seems just it just seemed awkward of an expression for him to refer to her by that rank because she's an honorary you know lieutenant. You know she's you know in, in a senior position within this um, quasi military he's formed. But it just seemed, it, it struck me as odd to, to refer to her as Lieutenant Weasley and to have her respond as though she were actually in a military and she were not to think that. You know, particularly odd that he referred to her by that, but that she had been, you know, put on notice, you know, for, for being inappropriate was what she was shocked by, not the fact that he actually called her that. And what I said to myself after I thought that was, you know what? The, he's right. I mean, they are, this isn't an ordinary situation. I don't know if you can get too melodramatic here because really the stakes are that high. So that was probably the closest it came to me almost getting knocked out of the story. But I kind of put myself back in because I'm like, what's the alternative? You know, someone needs to be in charge. Someone needs to be, you know, the voice of these people because literally what Neville said did ring true to me. They will get picked off one by one and this is their only chance and they do need to do this. I think then fiction takes the story, and I think he does very well with it, and I don't think he does go overboard. And in particular, I think it's just great to hear something from Neville's perspective, because Neville's ne- he's never been a character I've read, you know, from the perspective of before, and I think and I think it's really just interesting. I think I, I, I'm a little tired of reading from Harry's perspective, so I think it's great. I, I think that he does a really good job. I've read that line as, keep your priorities in line. The Slytherins aren't the enemy anymore. Well, they aren't just the enemy anymore. There are some who aren't the enemy, who some who actually want to help us. It, the priority was we're in a war here. We can't go, you know, falling back on you know schoolboy rivalries. We got to think big picture. No, I agree with that. I think what I was like, for example, there was a story I read once. I think it might have actually been um, one of Barb's stories that we're going to cover in a few weeks, um, where there was a house elf army. And Harry was their general, and he referred to himself. He was referred to as General Pother. I think, I think Ron was the second in command, so he was, you know, Colonel Weasley. And they walked around referring. And at one point, he would he yelled Colonel at Ron. I'm like, I was just picturing seven year old kids in the backyard with giant helmets on going over there. Like I'm like Lieutenant Weasley. Her name is Ginny, but it does make sense that they would transition there because I think sort of a snap out of it kind of thing. Yeah. Plus, you can make the argument the 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 stakes are so high. I think that the lieutenants, anyway, realized really, really, really quickly in this fic how important it is that they have a an identity aside from their school identities, from who they are in their houses, because when they walk into the room of requirement. As the DA, they need to be business, you know, per se, you know, when they're talking. I mean, obviously, they have their fun times, too, when they get the, you know, the rare chance. But 
but when he says Lieutenant Weasley, he he says that because he knows that that's going to immediately get her attention. It's going to yeah. immediately perk her back because it's going to set her back, you know, on her toes. She's she's going to snap back into that thinking. You know, they've committed their lives. They're not just, you know, throwing out flyers and, and writing names on the wall. What they've done is they've gone in and they've said, you know, we're going to die trying. So they have to have a seriousness to them. And without that characterization, that, that ability to, to, to call a thing what it is, they needed that ability to separate. Organizations are only as strong as the will of the people who are a part of them. I mean, you could argue that Neville's the seventh year and, you know, Luna's the sixth year and they're not generals and they're not admirals and they're not, you know, commanders and, and, and they are simply kids playing war. Or you could say, we're the people in it and it's, it's real to us and these are our friends who are literally dying out there and we will do whatever it takes. And I think the reason, like, like I've read some of these stories where you've had, you know, General Potter and, you know, Lieutenant Weasley and stuff, and it always rubs me as just silly. But I think what makes that not the case here is that you have, across the first few chapters, the, the story opens with Seamus getting the snot kicked out of himself because he's not going to take it. And he will push and push and push and push. And you have Parvati, you know, be crucioed. And Parvati's always written uh, as, you know, while she's always usually brave, she and Lavender and, and Padma are are the girly girls. They're the ones who want to gossip and talk about boys. And she's out there being literally tortured, you know, in a classroom willingly as a test subject. She has this whole thing where um, it's almost a parallel with Neville because she's been in Gryffindor all this time and she realizes she doesn't know if she's really all that brave and she wants to prove to herself that she can stand up to this stuff. And Neville so she volunteers. Yeah, yeah. And Neville tries to take the, the shot for her and, 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 and the thing with Neville is he doesn't, it's different than with Harry, whereas with Harry, he doesn't want anyone to take the bullet for him, whereas Neville doesn't want anyone else to have to take a bullet for anyone. He wants to take all the bullets himself. He doesn't want to be the one who's personally responsible for Barvati getting hurt. For sure. Wait, how's that different from Harry? Well, with Harry himself, everything's about Harry. So... Everyone wants to take the bullet for Harry, because Harry's the target. Whereas now, Neville's the commander, so he's the one who doesn't want to have to send people off to die. He'd rather go himself. Wait, but we were saying how people feel about Harry, but Harry feels the same way as Neville does, doesn't he? That he he wants to be the one to take it for himself. He doesn't want anyone else to, to make that sacrifice for him or instead of him. Harry wants to do it himself because he doesn't want anyone else to have to do it for him. With Neville, I think there's a sense that he doesn't want to have to be responsible for someone else being hurt. And I know it's... it's you don't think Harry... Well, was Neville... It's a very fine line. I, Neville doesn't want the responsibility at the start. He doesn't think he's capable, and he thinks he'll get people hurt. And Harry may think he's capable of doing it, but Harry doesn't want to have anyone else hurt for him, because Harry always has that complex where he doesn't want anyone else to have to suffer when he himself could do it. So it's like Neville, when when he sends Parvati into the fire, so to speak, he feels awful. And you have the scene with Seamus, with his little walker is moving around, and, and, and Neville's pacing like you know a father in a delivery room, because he wants to, you know, cl- claw his way into the girl's dorm to make sure Parvati's all right, because he feels that personal responsibility. With Harry, he doesn't want people to be hurt in his name. Neville thinks he's going to screw up. 
and he's going to get people killed needlessly. And, and Seamus literally has to shoot him to get him to calm down because he's going to draw the carer's attention because Parvati did okay. And it means something to Parvati to know that she was able to do it. And Parvati needs to feel that strength. And just like with Snape, every time Snape pushes, everyone else gets more united. Neville needs to let people be hurt because people need to feel as invested in as as everyone else. So it's it's Neville has a over these six chapters has a real learning curve himself in terms of being a leader. But I think it's I, I really think th- that scene with with Parvati was just incredibly powerful that she needed to do that for her and Neville needed to let her do it because Neville isn't her protector. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. That's what's called a Ryan monologue. Mm-hmm. Well, she got sorted into Gryffindor for a reason. Yeah, and you and you don't often see like Lavender Brown. You don't often see why she's a Gryffindor, you know, in the sto- in the story, but she is. And so you see Seamus, and you see Parvati, and you see Ernie McMillan, and you see Neville himself, and you see. And speaking of Parvati, walking into the classroom, you know, to be tortured, the way that she did it was perfect. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it, it was it was completely in character for her. It wasn't like she was playing, you know, any games. She might have just been being herself, and and that's what was kind of brilliant about all of it was how calculated and planned it was. And she just breezed in, and she's like, "Oh, yeah, I'm late for class." Yeah, and every that's one of these kids, they're walking in there, and the reason the Lieutenant Weasley thing did work, even though it knocked me out of the story for a second, was that these kids from the first paragraph these kids get it they've been through this for years they get it and they will literally die for this and the scene when neville is at, uh, i think he's at the three broomsticks with ernie who bought the ring for susan and he knows that she'll probably be a widow in a few months anyway but we're going to do this now i mean he's a he could walk away he's going to get married over the summer and he could take his new wife and they could move to canada and live with scott because I'm sure Scott has room, and <laughs> Scott he, he doesn't have Wi-Fi, but damn it, he has he has square footage. Wait a but few chapters. But he's coming back, and he's gonna presumably you know stick it out, and he's gonna and he's gonna fight, and that's that's why it works. It's not because Neville Neville's not talking them into anything; <laughs> they're actually talking Neville into it. I mean, the scene with Terrence the, the Slytherin, Slytherins are always written as. You know, they're all Death Eaters, or if you read some of our other authors, they're all very, very nice guys, and they're just misunderstood. And and and, and Draco's a very nice boy, or they're somewhere <sighs> in the middle. And I think. <laughs> Yes. I'm not but, going there. I'm not going there. I love that last week where, where Kelly's basically like, Mike, put it away. We're doing an interview. <laughs> um, but you know what? You you have a Slytherin here who's like, look, I hate mudbloods. My father is a death eater. I don't believe everyone was made equal. But the enemy of my enemy is my friend. I think Voldemort is out of his flipping mind. And I think, you know, he, he can't be trusted and he's not in this for me. And I'm scared. And I think that while I don't agree with you on virtually anything, I do agree. And, and I, and I just want to point out, I love the, the scene with Neville when he describes his grand, you know, when they were going to basically take away the rights of muggles and, and muggle-borns, I believe, and they were going to allow uh, magic to be used against muggles for quote-unquote defensive purposes. Augusta Longbottom led the fight to not shut down the debate. And she did it, you know, I'm sure there were many people, Dumbledore maybe included, who didn't even want to talk about it, who wanted to shut down Lucius Malfoy. It's not 
acceptable to shut down your opponent because that makes him more powerful. Like we saw in Order of the Phoenix, if you ban the Quibbler, the Quibbler will become popular. You shut the bigots up, the bigots get more power. It's like the Westboro Baptist Church. The, these people should be able to walk down Main Street. They should be able to protest because everyone should never forget that there are people out there with those views. They go back to the common room after Seamus is in class. Seamus goes off the cuff talking about some archaic magic that he knows that's not considered probably really even magic, just some stuff is... Oh, I love you know, that. He's learned, from, he's learned from his family and and all of a sudden it's like, whoa, we have some, we have a chance, you know, maybe we can cause a little bit of damage here and maybe we can start the DA back up. And, and Neville has this whole internal monologue with himself about why he's going to do this. And, and after they have this conversation and, and he's stepped up and, and he just basically spills out, he's like, I'm going to do this and I don't care if anybody wants to come with me, but he has that brilliant conversation about they're either going to convert us or we're going to get picked off one by one. He has this brilliant lecture he gives and everybody jumps in and says, I'm for it, I'm for it, I'm for it. He goes back to his room and he's just like, I am so not worth all this. Well, he wanted everyone to face reality and he wanted everyone to acknowledge the fact that we are actually at war. This isn't like in Order of the Phoenix. That'd be great if Neville was like, this isn't like in Order of the Phoenix. This isn't like two years ago where I, we have to try and convince people that there's something actually happening. It's readily apparent to everyone. We need to act. And that's that's the motivation and that's the, that's the support for everything else that happens in the story. We will get picked off one by one if we don't make this final stand together here. And they're I- like, okay, Neville our leader and Neville's like right. Wait, what? I, 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 but he goes. I, yeah. He goes. He they, goes they back can't. to his. He goes back to his room and he pulls a Neville. Mm-hmm. He's just like, I am not worth this. I I cannot do this. I I am not Harry Potter. I I cannot be a leader. I do not know. I, I just I cannot do this. Mm-hmm. And and then there's Jenny. And, and I just want to say that is, so, and that is so refreshing too, because what we would otherwise get from that scene, if that were Harry, was I will do this myself. I am capable of doing this. I cannot let anyone else do this for me. And we've all read that a thousand times. It's refreshing to hear I can't do this. I cannot. Do and again, we all know that I am the world's hugest Jenny fan, but this is another reason why I like the character of Jenny. She is made of awesome. She goes yes. in there and she reminds him, she's like, your parents, you know, Neville wants to bring up his parents. He's like, my parents gave their life for me and I am worthless. And she looks at him and she's like, your parents sacrificed their life and look at what you're doing. Are you know, are you going to be, do you want to be worthless or do you want to make their sacrifice worth something? And even more, there's even a scene beyond that, that that makes it even that much more powerful. She's like, you were braver than I ever thought. And she says that right after he basically says how worthless he feels he is. She's like, Harry lost everything you lost, you know, and it was even harder on you because you had just, you were lingering there on the edge, whereas Harry had some sense of finality to it. And he has had the respect and just the, you know, the sympathy of the entire world. And you have suffered alone every single day and you've kept this all in. And And because, because he's held it in and and he's still standing, that makes him wonderful and that you know it just so 
so telling about Neville's character and his leadership abilities. He just never he, thought of that. You know, he never he never thought of that. And then he's able to take this conversation, which, by the way, gets him in a shitload of trouble with his girlfriend. Look, okay, there's a little vibe going on there. She beat, was it when she beat him over the head with the potted plant? <laughs> she lights it on fire. Like, I'm sorry, she that, that's arson. Can I just say, don't mess with the Hufflepuff. I know they're sitting they're sitting in class and they're 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 passing notes next thing you know, you know, Hufflepuff's I on did enjoy that. It's not like he cheated on her or anything either. They're not even together. I mean even if like she, he did something with Ginny, but like you know Look, I said, I'm her. in chapter we're we're at the end of chapter six now and near the end of chapter six he decided he likes her clothes. <laughs> so starting to, he's starting to like her but he has no idea that she likes him. <laughs> and then Spar's like everything wrong? No, no fine, fine. fine. No, no. That's a little sad for Neville, too. That, per, that, that you know, she lights his clothes on fire. And he's like, ah! So he has to put the fire out. So then she doesn't want to sit near him, because now apparently she says she's allergic to him. So now he's like, sit at himself, he's on fire. And then they leave. He thinks the whole thing is about something completely different. He's like, yeah. I'm sorry, I didn't tell you in person about the fact that we're going to leave the order. Dumbledore, I keep saying the order, Dumbledore's army. Yeah, we're bringing it back. I forgot to tell you personally. So then he chases her across the, the ground. And she starts attacking him with plants. <laughs> he's so confused. And he's point, just like he's just like I thought. I'm 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 glad you understand. And you know. he's doing well. He's ducking most of the attack. Like I'm wondering why are all these plants just hanging around? Because she seems to have a lot of them to hit him with. And at one it's point, in the greenhouse. Oh, they, they, they made the green. And then there's the point. He started in the greenhouse. No, they left because he had to chase her. Maybe they were still in the greenhouse. At one point, she makes a comment about Ginny, and he's so confused. She totally smacks him and there's like vines growing down his throat. It's awful. So then of course Ginny shows up and then he he's, be, he's being strangled by the venomous tentacular. <laughs> you don't mess with the Hufflepuffs because Sprout will take out your kneecaps and, and and you don't mess with Hannah. And then by the time it's over he wakes up Ginny's got a black eye. <laughs> <laughs> you can picture they're beating the crap out of each other. You know, like in drawn cartoons, you know, yeah. like a scene of a cat fight, you know, where there's this, just this big yeah. ball of scribbling and you see cat claws flying out yeah. the outside edges. It's like, that's just what I kind of saw that. Uh, and, and you picture Snape and his Death Eater meeting. He's like, now, how do you think it's going to go over with the students? Do you think we're going to have to kill any of them? And he looks out the window and the Hufflepuffs are beating each other <laughs> over the head with blood. <laughs> No, that's that's okay. I think the Hufflepuffs are going to take care of themselves. (laughs) We own the school by May. So then he wakes up. He's like, look, I understand. You thought I was having an affair with Harry Potter's girlfriend, and you thought that was disrespectful to Harry's memory. I want you to know I would never do that. (laughs) Harry's like a brother. And Hannah's like, you are an effing moron. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he still doesn't get it. He's a guy. We're like that. Yeah. And he asks Ginny to explain, and so she goes on for about four paragraphs, and he's like... (laughs) Um, right, that makes sense. Could you go over that again? Well, you know what? He got beat over the head with pottery, so it's possible he's just old him. Well, I felt a little bad, too. This is the one professor who thinks highly of him, and there's that bit where, like, now she's looking at him like all the other professors looked at him. I'm like, oh, no, poor well, Neville. Well, you have to feel bad 
bad for Neville because he's sitting in the, at the desk and he's got Hannah on one side and him on the other and Sprout looks over and Neville's on fire. <laughs> and your immediate reaction is, this is your fault, Neville. Like, yes, I'm trying to kill myself, Professor Sprout. You got me. I'm going for the slow burn. Well, we start off chapter one and right off, well, first they go into the whole warped history thing, which does really well because that's exactly what you would expect someone like Electo Caro to be saying. And here comes Seamus and he's decided the whole thing is um, he's coming to school. It's the second day or something. And he is not going to stand for this anymore. And he just, he starts out, he's completely calm the whole time. He's like, oh, um, those antisocial tendencies you're mentioning there, that would be why uh, Voldemort is a complete crazy loon. Well, first you go after their boss, you go after Voldemort, and then you imply incest because that goes over well. Electro's describing the medical dangers of conceiving cross-breeded child, you know, between a, a, a pure blood and a muggle-born or so forth. And it reminded me initially of, like, a Disneyland ride. Like, can cause high <laughs> blood pressure, rapid weight loss, you know, do not use... But what's the, what's the erectile uh, dysfunction drug that you need to consult a doctor if you have an erection that lasts longer than, like, seven Viagra? No, not Viagra. It's the, it's the other one. It's the commercial where they show, like, a dog running along the beach, and you don't know what the product is. Is, is that... Is, is it Cialis? It's the Cialis one. Like, seriously? The, Isn't it scary that I know? What because then you see the librarian, and she looks so happy talking about it, and she's like, Cialis can kill you. Consult your doctor before using Cialis. And it's like, you, can, like, you can die of a four-hour hard on. <laughs> like, seriously, do you not have a child with a muggle-born? Is it can cause high like, blood oh. pressure, weight loss, male baldness, you know, your left <laughs> ankle can explode. Oh. That sounds awful. <laughs> so that was my first time. So, of course, Seamus makes fun of, of parentage. He makes an incest joke. And, of course, they decide you're going to have to die. So they shoot him with the Grusio curse. And I do enjoy the fact, well, I don't enjoy the fact because I'm a nice person, but I do appreciate the fact that the Crucio curse is something that you need to recover from because Harry gets Crucioed and then he goes to Quidditch. <laughs> he gets, poor guy, he gets Crucioed all the time. So, so Seamus gets crucioed, and he's kind of walking. Who here has seen Galaxy Quest? I have. Mm-hmm. Do you remember at the end when when Mathazar you know has beaten the crap out of the bad guy, and he's walking around with his little cane, and he's he's okay, and he's he has like a little bit of a hemorrhage there, and, he, and he's kind of drooling a little bit. Seamus may be drooling, and he may only have one eye left. I think that's good. The Crucio curse should cause damage, so I, I did appreciate the fact that it was it was realistically shown there. Would you believe this is Andy's first story? No. First thing he ever, of any length that he ever wrote. That's impressive. I have to read his other stuff now. Yeah. A lot of oh, it's his, excellent. A lot of his stuff out there are characterizations of the characters that are in the story. Mm-hmm. They continue things in this universe. I thought, I thought he was making a kind of, it was a kind of a jokish thing. I wanted to see if you read it the same way. When they go, um, but I'm not putting all my gold there. It would be great. And I believe with all my heart, Harry's going to get him in the end. But doing it in one year with only Ron and Hermione's help seems like a tall order. Am I, am I the only one that thought that was a joke? Um, a little bit. It's, it's a little bit. It's a good Isn't line. Exactly I, like does? It's, it's, I didn't think it was a joke because they were talking about it in terms of the, yeah. you know. Before okay. we get out of here, they're going to kill us on the last day. So we'd rather a limited amount of time. Well, it's like in the stories where Harry knows it's it's coming up to May, so the, the final battle will be held soon because we always seem to have the final battle in May. Like, that seems... <laughs> 
<laughs> Where's this point? There's something that that will occur at the end of the school year. It's when they lose their protection. So they've got to, you know, Harry isn't going to make it by the deadline. So we've got to help him. I took it as one of those things. But yeah, I'm sure there was some type of subtext. Yeah. There. I and like how he says it. that, and um, the creepies sort of stiffen because they can't imagine <laughs> Harry is the uh, awesome yeah. of awesomeness, and will finish everything in a month. And yeah, right. Devil <laughs> has that feeling too a little bit. I get the sense that he has his sort of hero worship of Harry going. Yeah. Right. Well, it's when they start referring to. Neville in the same tone of voice that they refer to Harry, it's like, whoa. He's in trouble. Neville's like, I don't know what's going on here. Well, like, but you I know just, what I would like to see? Like, for all this worship of Harry that's going on now, like, half of these people two years ago disliked Harry and didn't trust him and all this stuff, and that's just sort of like not mentioned. Like, suddenly, like, every single person besides the Slytherins like Harry. When I, I can clearly remember times in canon where, like, people, everyone in Hufflepuff and everyone in Ravenclaw were, like, horrible to Harry. Well, I was fifth year. World wasn't the world wasn't at war then. Yeah, and well, true, but, but, I, but I would like to see like some like, like I don't know. I guess I'd like to see them try to address that yeah. with themselves. Well, the worst was Seamus, right? Seamus was the worst, not betrayal, but Seamus. Gryffindor, he was the worst. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, if Zachariah Smith tried to open his mouth right now, the Hufflepuffs would smack him. So I know, like since he is no longer the hood <laughs> ornament of Hufflepuff House, Zachariah Smith. <laughs> <The hood ornament. laughs> well, let's even talk about that too, because you have the original scene where Neville has his first, I'm picturing Neville in his little cardigan and he's having his first meeting of Dumbledore's army, you know, phase two. And he has to decide whether or not they're going to, well, for one thing, I always think it's stupid to sign a roster because someone always finds the roster. Stop writing things down. Don't leave emails. Do not have a Facebook page for Dumbledore's army. It's <laughs> going to end badly. But, you know, well, they yes, back and forth. What, he's what, got 5,000 more people than he expected to have and he's supposed to remember what their, all their special talents are. So he kind of has to have them write something down. Which is fair enough. But now you have the thing where, you know, what do we do with the list? Do we put a, you know, hex on the list? And, and they opt for the Fidelius charm. Now, I thought they were going to do an unbreakable vow. Or I thought Neville was going to put some type of curse on it where, by the way, if you tell anyone you're in Dumbledore's army, you will die. Like, I was expecting <laughs> something very dark. Like, for this time everyone, know, everyone knows what the stakes are this time. And everyone knows who the secret keeper is. Yeah, is well, that wise? That's part of the secret, so they can't tell anyone. Right. But do they, did they have to know it was... Did they have to know who it was? Yeah, I bet if one of them wanted to give it away, you could. Like, even if you can't say Colin's name, like, maybe you make, like, a fake says this, you know, the person runs down all the students or, like, gives some sort of hint kind of, like, I, like, I'm sure, like, if, if one of them was, like, a traitor, they could give away Colin if they really wanted to. Well, that's my question. Can they give away the Secret Keeper? I don't think they can directly, but I think they could do it indirectly, right? Anyone know? I want to think that they can't. It kind of makes it impossible to yeah. break. Well, that's I mean, people outside. If there were people outside the Fidelius who knew there was a Fidelius, but not what the secret was and stuff, they might be able to then give away who the secret keeper was. Like in the case of Harry and his parents, everyone knew that Sirius was the secret keeper because they said it to a bunch of people. It wasn't either James or Lily telling people. It was various other people involved who knew there was a Fidelius going on. Well, how they find out if someone did. 
didn't who was in, who was involved in it didn't tell them. Well, they were wrong. They just um, it was known that they were going to set up a Fidelius, and Sirius was the logical choice to be the one. So let's say like Ernie's a. I know he's not. But let's say like Ernie was a secret Voldemort supporter. You're saying he couldn't give Colin's name to them. Probably not, because I think it would be included in the secrets. Like, Neville was very, very specific about how much of a secret this was. You are the secret keeper for everyone who is now, ever was, or ever will be in Dumbledore's army. And everything they ever do, where they meet, what they're planning, everything to do with Dumbledore's army is in the secret. So you can't give away the existence of Dumbledore's army itself. I've never gotten how the Fidelius charm actually works, because I think it's one of those things where what I'm picturing in my head is so stupid that can't possibly be it. But it's like, if you know where James and Lily live and they have a Fidelius charm put on their house where they continue to live, can I no longer see their house? Can I no longer see them at their house? Can I no longer remember where their house is? Like, I'm picturing well, a lot of people that, going, because mm, <laughs> they can't actually say it. Like, I, like, I don't, I get the, the concept of the spell. It's just the practical application. Like, yeah, like, yeah. like, going like that, if you tell me that, you know, Ernie the traitor can't reveal, see, so what, so what, what if, you know, like, okay, um, Stop, you know, keep keep tapping your fingers and stop tapping your fingers if I say the right name. You know, Ernie, <laughs> you know, I put on a list of names. You tell me you can't, that he'll physically be unable to stop his fingers, for instance, or that, you know. Something or like that, I think, probably could be done, but they would they would have to really go to a lot of trouble to work that out. Like, Snape and the Caros would have to line everybody up and spend half a day with all of them and go through this whole list of questions, and only three of them would be ones that they could figure out that way and all well, that everyone sort of- seemed to know that Dumbledore was the secret keeper and everyone seemed to be able to discuss it with themselves but I actually right. don't know if anyone if they ever discussed um, and I'm talking about Grimmel Place I don't think they ever discussed it with anyone else who wasn't in on the secret but Mm-hmm. I, I was just picturing they're telling everyone that, that Colin's the secret keeper, so someone's just going to go, you know, find Colin and beat the crap out of him and try and get the secret. So it was kind of putting him in unnecessary risk. Although I did really love his speech where he basically says, I'm being used, everyone's being used, we all have skills, it's fine to be used, everybody shut up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which I thought was uh, very direct for Colin. Yeah. I, I like the whole paragraph where they notice it's like, yeah, this guy is um, actually a 15 year old. He's um, five years older than we think he is because just because he's excited and bouncing all the time you never actually notice that he's grown up for four years or whatever okay i need to talk about some things because i'm gonna bail here in a second because i have other things to uh do but i want to talk about the things that i want to talk about and then you you know (laughs) go ahead let's see there was a section in chapter two that i really really liked they were talking about snape being the headmaster and the discipline of the care and Neville's jerking his head toward the Slytherins and Seamus again, you know, is being himself and he's like, I'll practice my puckering up. And Jenny says, just be careful. And she says, if, if you're planning to kiss Electo's ass, you have to look twice to make sure you're not aiming for her face. <laughs> That's a great line. I love, um, there's another one with Seamus, too, where they're all practicing their non-Latin charms, because they're trying to find charms that no one knows the counter curses to. And I think it was Padma completely bends over because she does yoga. <laughs> so so that will be her defense. And Seamus is like, I'm in love with you. <laughs> just be the... <laughs> You get shot, like, you can't get up for an hour. <laughs> well, and, I, and, and Neville responds to her, and he just, you know, he's laughing, and he's he's like, I, I finally know how, 
why Harry fell for you. And she's like, well, I don't know. I think he just likes living dangerously. And I think, that I, <laughs> again, Jenny is made of awesome. Jenny's always like been made Seamus's of awesome. I Seamus' reaction to that, too. He's like, so when you say dangerous, do you mean all your six brothers or just you? Like, <laughs> you can't handle me. <laughs> well, I like the one. What was the comment she makes to Neville back in Chapter 2? It's about basically grow a set of balls. And, just, and, and he looks at her. She's like, I live with seven boys. Katie Bell had to tell me I needed a bra, and she had to tell me how to put the damn thing on. Trust me, I can talk about balls. <laughs> He's like, well, you're almost as tall as Rod, and I think you have a bigger beard than Harry does. Um, why aren't you acting like a... Yeah. You yeah. obviously have balls. Why aren't you using them? I'm like, oh my... <laughs> And then also in chapter two, Luna, when she's talking from the suit of armor, she catches <laughs> I love that. <laughs> she she catches Neville in the hallway. You know, to let him let him know that, you know, she's got news from her dad and you know, you just see Neville just, you know, just tooling along in the hallway and all of a sudden just see the, the armor, you know, talking her <laughs> Neville, Neville, Neville. And Neville's standing here, he's like, Okay, I've I've decided I'm a general. I just get used to that. Now I'm talking to furniture. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like he's just like, "Am I going mad?" You know, he's looking, and he's like, "Oh, it's just Luna." I just want to say real fast the one thing that did jump out at me. Uh, they have the scene right after that where they go to discuss the the Quibbler article. They have Terrence's father on the front page of, of the Quibbler, and it's really Harry and Polly Juice from Deathly Hallows. And they seem to deduce very quickly that he was there for the necklace because if I if I recall, they take it from Umbridge, they put a replacement necklace around her neck, but somehow the fact that the necklace was taken made the article and Janine thinks hmm I saw a necklace three years ago I wonder if it's related and all of a sudden they're like oh my god she wasn't that she saw it at Grimmel Place it was that she noticed Harry had an, an, a locket after- mm-hmm. oh that's true when Dumbledore died okay I, no it was it was like this is me reading the scene she's like oh my god Harry took a necklace oh my god I saw a necklace years ago I wonder if there was I wonder no. if Voldemort lived in the necklace because if he lived no, in the I- necklace he also lived in the book oh my god you have to kill the book with the sword of Gryffindor we have to bring into Snape's office and they all like put their hands on <laughs> each other like you know i mean it it was it might have been a little bit of a uh, stretch for for them to to get it so quickly but you know i like that jenny's also wrong because if she got it all right at that point it would have been too much of a coincidence but what she figures out is that oh harry must be trying to get possessed so he can see into voldemort's mind and get all the secrets because i I think what i picture jenny is that you know she's you know, he's left her. She's grieving about this. She has no idea if he's coming back. And I can see that she's probably been through every second of every moment that they've spent together for any kind of clue or anything that she could make sense out of anything. And and then she sees him possibly, you know, stealing a necklace from the ministry. And he had a necklace the night that Dumbledore died. And, and she knew needing to go on a mission with Shin, with Shin, with Dane, with Dane. He wasn't telling anybody about it. And at some point out, this is what Gen 2 would likely sound like if she were drunk. I think that she's smart enough that she could start to put together, and even if she was wrong, that she's smart enough to, to be able to start to read between the lines. No, I think you're right. I mean, the the one thing I loved about the scene, it's it's kind of like with Lieutenant Weasley. That was a point where you, you were going into danger, melodrama mode, but it gets pulled back. And because he has such a great conversation with the Slytherin, and because the stakes were raised so substantially high, and they were met, it's okay. Because Ginny gets five things 
things right there very conveniently, because that leads her to the totally wrong conclusion, that saves the scene. Because mm-hmm. it, it's natural. There's no way you can guess that whole thing right there, but she's totally wrong. She's totally wrong. Harry is not trying to possess, get possessed by Voldemort. It, she's totally wrong. So that gets you there. So I, I think that he does a, just a really good job of just threading that needle, because you have to get all the way to the wall, but you never get pushed over it. When they're choosing the lieutenants, Jenny's obvious, and, you know, he chooses Ernie because he doesn't want to choose Hannah and... And have to assign them something horrible and get um, right, off the right, point. Right, right, And then then he chooses Luna and everyone just goes, whoa. You it, chose the crazy girl, may we ask why? Are you sure this is what you want to do? And she's just like, well, you know, the Death Eaters that I took down, you know, just unmask them because that takes the psychological part of it away, you know, and everybody just sits down and they're like, well, holy shit. Neville says she's the only person in Ravenclaw I know of this fought fully grown Death Eaters and won. And they all look at her like, you were telling the truth about that? <laughs> like, you can tell she comes back and they're like, oh, that's nice. And they pat her on the head and they send her off to dinner. So it was great that she got that recognition, especially since she's like laying in the beanbag chair with her staring up at the ceiling. Luna, maid of awesome too. Because yeah. everyone Luna, else is Luna. like, oh yes, I'm honored. And she's like, oh, okay, well, whatever, sure, whatever. whatever. Yep. That's cool. That's cool. That's cool. Cool, cool. Oh, uh, My yeah. daddy print up some... Is it doing again? Yeah. yeah. You just said, how many times did you just say that's cool? Once. We heard it five times. Now I'm thinking you're having a stroke. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not having a stroke. Okay. You know what this is? It's fate telling me that I need to go for tonight and let you all finish off this podcast in the way that Poofwanians should finish off podcasts. However, I have done my podcasting duty for tonight, and now I need to go... My husband. Thank you for sharing the visual of yourself and your husband with the turnaround music, which is now flooding. <laughs> Turn around. Well, no, come, um, come on. It's our 15th wedding anniversary. We're probably going to go pop some popcorn. <laughs> oh, chica bow wow. <laughs> That's what they call it now. <laughs> Shut the hell up. They are getting more action in one night than I've had in a year. He does deserve some of my time tonight, as but I did want to did want to did want to be here for the first podcast of this. I did not want to miss this. I'm hopeful that your marriage will survive. I'm here by myself. They are making very strange noises. I put a hole in the roof with my broom, heck banging on it. I've got bits of the ceiling coming down. I actually have to fix my house. So we'll have you back on soon. Have a great night. Thanks well, again for Good night, everybody. Mike, don't send me any more books. <laughs> Bye. 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 Now, we've had one episode in the history of Horrific Weekly where we had no women, and it ended with Mike having a meltdown. You see the line to Burbank. Neither can live while while the other survives. survives. What does that mean? How does that mean what is to kill the other? Aren't they alive right now? Clearly they can both be alive while the others are living. Gen 2 had to take off. I'm going to add in some estrogen to the podcast as we get into Parvati Paddle, friend Urfo. Who is P.S. coming in? Uh, well, no, P.S. is not coming in. Well, Keza. Hello. Hello. I'm here uh, podcasting with uh, Tim, Scott, and Mike right now. Gen 2 had to go have sex, so um, <laughs> we wanted to add a woman into the podcast. I hope I didn't give anything away. <laughs> 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 Bye, Jeff. <laughs> we love you. <laughs> That's not what I was expecting. <laughs> Just
just out of curiosity, what were you expecting? <laughs> funny story. Funny you should ask that because I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here at my laptop in the kitchen and I'm editing the season finale and I've put episode 61 in Audacity. I'm listening to it and I'm pulling out the clip where we call Gen 2 onto a podcast so that PS can tell her she's converted to Harry Ginny. So I thought all of a sudden, right, it's like, hey, you want a podcast? I'm like, oh, they've got an announcement for me. <laughs> the <laughs> announcement is that someone on the other side of the world <laughs> is getting some at this very moment. Oh, dear. We are such junior high schoolers. <laughs> It gives me great comfort that many years from now, Gen 2's daughter, eBay, will listen to this podcast and be totally grossed out. <laughs> I'm totally grossed out. All right. So far, let's give you a rundown of um, of this episode of, of Puff Boy here. We're doing the first six chapters of Year of Darkness by Andrew. Say hello, Andrew. Hello, hello Andrew. Andrew. I tried to call him Dan Fiction, but it seems like it's a prepositional phrase. <laughs> And it's like, I need to have it's more It's short for Stranger Than Fiction. Yes. So I, unfortunately, cannot call him Stranger Than Fiction because it's not in his little author name there. So I will just call him Andrew because we don't have enough Andrews in the world. So far tonight, we have discussed uh, Seamus Finnegan is basically kick-ass because he's Irish. The puffs are made of wind, but they apparently have a lot of beer bellies. Uh, <laughs> what else have we hit up tonight? Gen 2 said? What else did we do? Snape. What did we talk about with Snape? We don't know if Snape is trying to actively help Dumbledore's army or if he is just... How much he's playing a role and how much he just really hates Neville Longbottom, we don't know. (laughs) Yes. Now, the well, one... Harry's gone, so he needs a new target for his ire. Now, the one thing I want to say is, after having read Lavender Brown series and having read Barb's Psychic Serpent Trilogy, which we're going to get to in a few weeks, I am used to, in stories, the lead male dating between three and five of the female characters. It's just, it always, always seems to be happening. So the entire quasi-romance here with, with Neville and Parvati. Well, first, I thought Neville was being a jerk because he is cheap on Hannah. Hannah, you may remember, beat him senselessly with plants in an earlier chapter. And I'm like, this is awful. Neville, you know, like, what are you doing? You're cheating on her. Then I realized Neville is dumb as a brick. He doesn't know that Hannah likes him. So what I would have liked to have seen was Neville and Ginny walking across the school grounds, planning their next order meeting, and all of a sudden they look, and Parvati is laying on the ground with, like, a cactus coming out of her head. Like, oh my god, Hannah got... <laughs> and Neville could be like, this is amazing. Why does this seem to be happening? I don't know. She's obviously angry at me because of Harry again. I don't get it. I don't know why, but whatever. I've never even considered the possibility that Parvati and Neville could ever have a relationship. I've never gone there. Like, that to me is like Remus. In my fic. Really? In my fic, Well, yeah. spoil it for me, Wyoming. I've never gone there. To me, that's like <laughs> Remus Tree. <laughs> Oh. oh dear! Oh, don't speak to me, <laughs> Remus Tree. I've never got. There are songs about it. I did like the fact where they break up, and her thing is basically Neville. You used to be, you know, the cute guy who tripped over things all the time, and now you're a man. And every time someone calls him that, I picture they actually do that with their voice, like a man. And he basically looks at her with a confused expression on his face. He doesn't really get it. He doesn't know why. But he's like, "Can we still?" kiss. And she's like, work with me. There will never be another man for me. So he was like, ah, you're gay. She's like, no, backing up. 
I can't date a man because he will die. So I can't <laughs> date you, Neville. So Neville's like, oh my god, I'm going to die. <laughs> She's like, back up with me. <laughs> it's a very awkward, awkward break. She and, just doesn't want to date Gryffindors because they keep getting themselves in dangerous situations. And at the moment, they're in the middle of the war. And she figures after the war, we can do the whole dating thing with whoever happens to show up. But and he's like, I don't. Is, yes. He's like, I don't love you, Parvati. I don't love you. But if I did, I hope you would beat me with a cactus. And then, well, then the thing I love too is he totally falls for Hannah Abbott's pajamas. <laughs> he looks at her it's and he's true. like, that's a handsome set of pajamas. If you had your hair down, you'd look like a wigless angel, he says at one point. Well, the thing with Neville that I love is he's got like a version of Tourette's. Randomly, he's in interior monologue and he automatically just starts speaking out loud, which you don't usually do. Like, usually, you won't actually be thinking in real words and just start speaking them. He tells, was it Ginny and Hannah he told them to shut up at one point? Yeah, Ginny and Luna, I think. Ginny and Luna. Hannah and Luna. Yeah, I, I don't know. Hannah was definitely there. He's like, shut up. And he's like, damn. <laughs> just um, thinking about uh, Snape, yes. Yes, Snape, I said the I loud part quiet and the quiet part loud again. <laughs> he has discovered that he has fallen for Hannah because of, of her very attractive pajamas. Okay. But that never happened. N- Fine. Yes. Before we go on. I'm totally ducking that question, yes? <laughs> is this still... My, my headphones just broke. Is, or is this okay with you? Back <laughs> yeah. You sound good, man. You sound good. You sound good. Sure. I didn't want. To, I didn't want an editor to kill me, so I'm just making sure. What was happening, Tessa, was Gen Two had this weird thing going on where she would be talking and she would be like, "And I really love this story, 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 story." So we're like, "Okay, you're either having a stroke or there's a problem with your Skype connection." She's like, "No, it's fine, 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 fine." That happens to me all the time. Every time we call each other, we get like this echoing. She goes to pop popcorn with her husband. She's probably having popcorn with her husband right now. (laughs) You guys are so male. (laughs) Well, we're sitting here, and I'm like... Thank you. Thank you very much. We've only had one all-guy... Like, I have to tell you, all of the men in this fandom are on this conference call right now. We need a woman. So then I call you, and it says on the Skype line, calling Keza. And Mike's like, oh boy, are you calling P.S.? I'm all alone, P.S. I'm so excited. I love you, man. What? It's true! Wait, what? McGonagall is very, very awesome in Chapter 3. She's the definitely, very end. yeah, she's definitely got her, uh, can I offer you a cough drop, Dolores, edge on this one, when they are all carving the names of, of absent students. She's like, could someone please remind whoever that Justin Finch Fletchley is a hyphenate? So I had to add the hyphen. <laughs> it unscrews the other way. Yes. Yeah, that's what it reminded me of, too, exactly. It unscrews the other way. You seem to have lost some weight. Oh, you're also bruised. Are you having secret Quidditch training? He's like, yes, yes I am. That's exactly it. Miss Paddle, I'm so sorry, but I'm going to have to tell everyone that you're a whore. (laughs) (laughs) And she's like, um, I hate to tell you, but most people already think that. Go with that, Minerva. Thank you. Because McGonagall is made of awesome. Whereas at this point, picture the Caro is trying to sneak into Hufflepuff Tower, and all of a sudden you hear, Like, what the hell is that? Do you hear that? Uh, it's getting louder. What is that? Uh, 
all of a sudden Sprout comes out of nowhere and tackles them both to the ground and starts beating them with the leftover pot that was previously used to beat Neville Senseless. You see, I picture a mob of Hufflepuffs, like, tearing people to shreds. They're baby fat jiggling. No, you've got that backwards. Oh, what are you though? talking about this baby fat? Aren't the Hufflepuffs, the Hufflepuffs supposed to be the, the most muscular of everyone? Well, everyone's telling me the same thing. Like, How are the Hufflepuffs muscular, Mark? Ernie is more muscular than Crab and Goyle. He has, like, these giant muscles. Uh, that's after they start working out, because originally their theory was lazy people can be loyal, too, was their pretty much their Oh, no, it's in the whole uh, they, point that when, when he's when he says the line about how the Hufflepuffs they are... They assign the, the Hufflepuffs to start the workout thing. They're in charge of the workout thing because they're the best at that. Nobody else ever works out. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's not very brave or smart or cunning to work out, but the Hufflepuffs do it all the time. So. Oh, okay. I completely misread the line. I read the line. I'm Mike this week. I swear to God. I originally read it that the Hufflepuffs, they were loyal to each other. They were a family and they were trustworthy, but they never really saw working out as a necessity. So they kind of all got flabby. Okay. Loyalty yeah. in the hard work. <laughs> no, and, but, they, but now that they need to, they can do it. But I always pictured it was basically like, yeah, you guys, you're, you're kind of a little tubby, so you need to work on that. Oh, no. No, the whole point yeah. is that their Quidditch team is actually the best in, pr- in pure athletic terms. I have dropped so far. Mike is explaining to me how I misread the fic. Like, when did this happen? <laughs> I was wondering that myself. Good God. <laughs> There you go. Mike's redemption. Wow. All right. So so here is the master plan. The master plan is as follows. We're going to climb up the side of the school. So we're going to rappel up to Snape's office. We are then going to use the whatever the hell the thing is that they have to open a hole 18 inches wide into Snape's office that Ginny will crawl through, open the window, let us in. We're going to beat the crap out of whatever is holding the sword up. We are going to then take the sword, throw it out the side of the school, rappel down the side of the tower, and give the sword to Dobby for safekeeping, because Dobby is always very good at these things, aside from the last time they had the master plan and Dobby screwed it up. And everything will be fine, because they will never be able to prove that it was Neville who broke in. That's the plan. Mm-hmm. In practice, Practicality. Eight hours later, they're on the third floor. They're like eight feet off the ground, and they're going to die. So they climb almost all the way up, and then Neville and Ernie fall. And Ernie falls all the way down, but is cushioned by Luna, and Neville falls like the whole way down the school, and he is stuck. Neville does his whole... Richard! Thing, and he gets Ernie to go back inside. So Neville starts climbing up the side of the school again. Now what confused me was it was in my text reader, and I wasn't getting the differences between the paragraph. He's climbing, 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 and he's being whipped, whipped, whipped. Then he's climbing some more, climbing some more. He's being pressed against the stone. But then there's a girl there who knows what it feels like. So I'm like, okay, they got captured, and they've got him up against the stone wall, and they're whipping him. But he's holding hands with Ginny, because Ginny just feels bad because she's being whipped as well. But then he's climbing again. I'm like, okay. They've got him up against the wall, and they're whipping him and Ginny, but now he's trying to climb up the wall to the way from the whip. So I'm trying to make sense of whatever the hell... Now I'm sitting at my desk, and I've got this confused look on my face, and the phone is ringing, and I'm like, hold on, I'll be with you in a moment. So he's climbing, 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 and now he's finally at the seventh floor. I'm like, alright, uh, was that a flashback? <laughs> when were they whipping Probably. him? So then he gets all the way up, and then... I thought that it was kind of neat. What was it? It was like the room emptied out, and they ran down the stairs, and there were hands everywhere, and they were running on the hands, and the hands were grabbing them. Mm-hmm. All the doors and windows vanish and they can't get back out again and everything's black and And then they're thrown in cells for two weeks and they scream for no reason but Luna has a spoon and she uses the spoon as a rudimentary wand (laughs) 
<laughs> and paints all sorts of wonderful pictures with her mustard on the cell walls. No, I love this. I it, It's so out there, but I love it. It's great. And that they're going to send the new trio, Trio 2.0, into the woods. Hagrid's going to walk them in, and then he has to come back out within an hour, or they're going to kill Fang. So at this point, I would really love Hagrid to just seriously kill the Caros, sit on them, and squeeze his ass cheeks together. <laughs> but he didn't think of it at the time. He didn't think of it, it at the time. No, here's my question. There's like three deathy. There's Snape and there's the Caros. Bellatrix isn't there, to the best of mm-hmm. my knowledge. Although, she, yeah, because she no, she's not there. She's the Voldemort. No, right? she's not. She's not there. There's three deathy. I may not be a brilliant tactical commander, but what would happen? Just hear me out. What would happen at dinner one night if all of the Hufflepuffs stood up at once and shot Snape? Just shoot them, like <laughs> all of them. I thought they were fat. Apparently, mm. they're very toned up. Just, I'm, I'm curious why this won't work. Hufflepuffs, we shoot Snape. Gryffindors, you shoot Caro number one. Ravenclaws, you shoot Caro number two. Uh, Slytherin on our side, hide. Mm-hmm. <laughs> would, th- would that work? The problem is what happens after. Yeah, I was going to think- say, then Voldemort comes down to Hogwarts and... No, and I've got a plan. In- I've got a plan. I've got a plan. Hear me out. All right, all right. We're going to take the Caros and we're going to take Snape, all right? We're going to take their wands because the wands are useful. We're going to take all of the metal off of them because we don't want there to be any spoons in there. What we're going to do is we're going to dig a hole. With the spoons? <laughs> no, not with the spoons. We can use shovels or want. We can use whatever we want. We're going to shave their heads, all right? We're going to shave their heads. Snapes will u- need to use gloves because it's greasy hair, but we're going to shave their heads. And we are going to bury them in the backyard. <laughs> and we are going to have Ginny, Luna, and Neville take polyjuice potion, and they are going to pretend to be Snape, Kara 1, and Kara 2, respectively. Now, I know that that's two women in that trio, but there's only <laughs> one girl. So I don't know who gets to play the other Caro. They could use Ernie, but Ernie doesn't really get top billing here, so I think they should give Luna something to do. But what if they just pretended? And Snape wakes up and he realizes, holy shit, I'm buried in the backyard. I'm good! But no one can hear him. Like, like there's only three people there. All the Slytherins, because they were shooting the teachers and ignoring the other Slytherins, except the guy who hid, write letters to their mommy and daddy in the Death Eater ranks and say, oh, by the way, they just shot your Death Eaters. And, oh, uh, oh, all right. Give me a second. <laughs> they, it would get back to Voldemort, and Harry hasn't had enough time to get all the Horcruxes yet. He, in fact, he Crap. hasn't even figured out what they are. You know what I forgot? So- you know what I totally spaced on? Harry. I forgot about him. Yeah. <laughs> totally spaced. Because seriously, right now we have Snape, who's a and we have the Caros, who I think are mentally handicapped. <laughs> and they're threatening to shoot Hagrid's dog. <laughs> yeah. And Hagrid's response is, I would shoot the dog if it would save your lives. He's stupid anyway. <laughs> and I'm like, ooh, Hagrid, this is really tough for you. You always liked the dog. <laughs> I love you more. And I'm just picturing, I think they can just, can't they just kill the Caros? If we're being truthful, that's not smart. Because all joking aside, what happens if you kill the Caros now? Voldemort descends with all his Death Eaters and in a blind rage wipes half of you out. Then what you get is backward with purpose because Voldemort's turned up and sets fire to Hogwarts and kills all the kids, see? Yeah. Ooh, that There's a reason why the plan is <laughs> wait till the last minute. Even their plan is we're going to die. If Harry has won by grad back- ceremony, then we're going to shoot everyone. No, and- I got a backup. I got, I got a backup. Hear me out here. All right. Classic Star Trek fans, you'll know what I'm going for here. All right. Here's the deal. The Caros, at the end of the night, will be walking down the hallway, licking things with blood on them. <laughs> Hagrid, will sneak up- Hagrid will sneak up behind them 
trip them, sit on them, and squeeze his ass cheeks together. <laughs> and they will die. Because, really, th- there's no way you're going to live through it. Here's the other deal. What is it with you and Hagrid sitting on people that die? I mean, <laughs> really, if you have Hagrid there, why not use everything you have available to you? Now they're dead. So now you, like, stick those things on their head. Remember the episode Spock's brain from classic Star Trek, where Spock's brain was stolen, so they stuck, like, a remote control on him? It was literally the remote control from a TV, and they just kind of, like, made him walk around and moved his arms and stuff, and he's like a little robot. <laughs> why can't they stick whoa, those whoa, on the caros? Like, <laughs> Luna can be walking around with a remote control, and the caros can be, like, walking, and their arms can be flapping everywhere, and Snape will just think they're not dead. Isn't that just, like, doing an Imperius on him, and that's, like, dark magic, and kind of against the side of the light? Well, I actually forgot about Imperius. That would probably be easier than... <laughs> probably <laughs> easier than remote control. <laughs> but if Harry can Crucio, they can Imperio. That's my response. Harry Imperioed as well. Yeah, well, then at the end of it, they're like, only use the Vada Kedavra as a last resort. I'm like, can they do a Vada Kedavra? Like, in all seriousness, can Dumbledore's army do a Vada Kedavra? Most it. of them probably not at this point. You have to really be hating whoever it is. Like, if Neville was faced with Bellatrix the Strange, I bet he I, could. I don't reckon they'd be able to do Imperius at this point, because I think they're probably at the point where Harry was at the end of Order of the Phoenix. That he couldn't Crucio. He didn't he couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that they'd be at the point where they could do Unforgivables yet, because it takes Harry until the end of Book 7 before he can do any. What do you think Hagrid got the no. pocket knife? Harry, <laughs> pocket I'm knife? Sure. Like, I don't, did he buy the big and tall? Like, where did he get the pocket knife? <laughs> giant Swiss Army knife. Sort of the giant Emporium. I did love the moment where Neville's like, I have this and I will defend myself, and you hear someone yell out, Spelliamus! And someone's like, um, <laughs> you're a wizard, you didn't know they could do that? <laughs> <laughs> oh, right, darn. Uh, I like their use of the, all the different spells all the time. Like um, They use about five different ones in the whole thing with the Great Hall. Um, I'm not entirely sure the Wadi Wazi one actually always makes gum fly up your nose. I think it's just fires whatever it is at wherever you point your wand. But, Can you put your tape? No, I like the fact that, because I didn't make notes for this because I wasn't prepared, so if I start talking off the top of my head, just shut me up. Isn't this the fic where they learn all the different language spells because then the caros and yes. don't know what, like, learn all the old Gaelic spells and stuff? I like that. I think mm. that's cool. Is it that, have I got the right fic? Yeah. Yep. Yes, well, you have the scene where Terence yeah. uses uh, dark magic against Ginny, and this is right before he, he comes around to the good side, basically, and they go after him for using dark magic. He's like, I'll use dark magic if I want it works, and they're like, um, don't they know how to counter curse dark magic? Don't you think it'd be better if maybe you used a spell that they didn't know? Isn't that the point of why we're here? This is all coming from Luna, but then like stares at the sky, smiles, and wanders away because something <laughs> shiny. <laughs> yeah, so I thought that was a very good plot point, and I haven't seen I haven't seen it before, <laughs> so I was really hoping it came from this thick yeah. fic because I think it's awesome. <laughs> they, it looks they like he's done spells. really good research making up these spells. I have no idea what Gaelic is supposed to be like, so he could just be faking it. But what I've seen, he knows the language pretty well. Is he Irish? Or Irish he might descent? be. I don't know. Next yeah. fic that he write is writing up is I haven't read it yet, but that's set virtually in Ireland. Gen One used to think that Seamus was Seamus. 
even though it was Russian. <laughs> so, uh, it the, the rain gag is a friend of mine called me once and said, what are you doing? I said, a, a, a friend of mine and I are about to watch Almost Famous. And there's a moment of silence. I love Seamus. <laughs> We're watching I Love Seamus. Uh, All right. I'm incredibly thrilled with the first six chapters. It grabbed me probably like no other story has on the podcast. I think that the characterization is incredibly impressive. I think that from one scene to another, it just all flows very well. The scenes that stick in my mind is Seamus standing up to the Karos, to Pravati, thanking Neville for not treating her like a girl who's a damsel in distress and letting her know that she is capable of fighting. I, I love the, the, the bookend of Snape pissing off the students so that they are unified and how they gather strength from the fact that they're all able to, contri- able to contribute. I love the scene with Colin and how he points out that they're all being used in war. I I, I love the, the the points where this fic would otherwise piss me off, and it doesn't because it, it it's substantive and it makes sense and it's believable. So I'm just really thrilled with the first six chapters. Can't wait to move on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I like pretty much everything that's happened in these ones. They have a lot of really good, um, very well-written, powerful scenes, like the, the character scenes, like the conversation between Neville and Ginny in the first chapter and between Neville and Runcorn in one of the later ones, mm-hmm. several things like that. And they also have the humor, like um, on the stairs where they're talking about Electo Caro, or um, at one point there's a line where they say, Susan and Ernie were trying to make Ron and Lavender from last year look subtle, or things like that. And uh, <laughs> Oh, no, I'm sorry. Can we just point out the fact that, okay, Ginny, okay, in this story, there are par- there are moments where Ginny may need a helmet, because first we have Ginny has, I figured it out, Harry's trying to get possessed by Voldemort. I got it. Perfect. I got it. And she's like, now, just so you know, you moron, you don't need to put your wand type on your identification, but you do have to chop off the front of your fingers. <laughs> yeah. But you only have to do it once. Fingertip instead of fingerprint. Chop off your fingertip, but you never have to, because I think we can save the fingertip, so you never have to do it again. I just thought that was great. <laughs> you know, what would have been funnier is if they chopped it off and gave it to her, and then she went to give it to her dad. I thought that would be funny. <laughs> and she's bringing in crates of wizard wheezes hidden in in old underthings, mailed from Molly. <laughs> Addressed to Virginia Weasley. I thought your name was Ginevra. Thank you for asking that. It's a very good question. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and there are a lot of nice moments with Hannah in which Neville still doesn't figure it out. <laughs> Teenage boy, remember? <laughs> I just watched the new Star Trek movie that came out, and there's the scene where uh, Captain Kirk is given a virus or, or an allergic reaction to sneak him on the Enterprise, and McCoy keeps chasing him around, giving him injections, and he's like, stop that, stop that, and he keeps shooting him with the stuff. First, Seamus shoots him up. Okay, with Petrificus Totalis again. Now that you're unconscious in this very humiliating way, which brings back awful memories of first year, by the way, are you going to be a good boy now? And he's just glaring up at them. So then a few scenes later, Ernie and Neville in the streets of of Hogsmeade and the Death Eater goes walking out the door so Ernie shoots Neville with the cr- and Neville starts vomiting everywhere. He's like, oh, sorry, you might want to go the other way. My friends had a little bit too much to drink. And Neville's like, stop it! Stop it! They go back up to the castle and Neville shoots Ernie with it so he gets Snape in the face. So, revenge <laughs> two different directions there. <laughs> well, I love the thought process that they use, too. They're like, okay, if Snape can't prove it's us, he can't do anything. I'm like, I wouldn't be so sure about that. 
He's like, where's my wand? I'm like, you might want to be less cocky, dude, because he might just shoot you instead. <laughs> that is a very cinematic scene at the end, though. Like they, They're walking up to the castle, and they burst the double doors open and march in down the room, and everyone stands up. They're giving them salutes and standing ovation, and three Slytherins stand up, and they're like, wait, what? And make everyone and even Goyle salutes him because he's like, "Wow, you're smart." Because <laughs> they're looking for a new leader anyway. It's like, you know what? I really don't like you, but you're kind of cool anyway. So yeah, I wouldn't trust Snape to obey the rules because technically he bled you to death and tortured you on the altar for three days. So it's not like he's afraid of kids running home to their parents. Yeah, <laughs> I'll have to see what happens in seven because I haven't read past it either. But it, it is a very good moment for the ending chapter. It's the uh, Neville's gone all Clint Eastwood. We had a I want my wand back. <laughs> well, it reminds me of the scene at the end of Chamber of Secrets, the movie, where you know, at this point, Hagrid's inside, and Hagrid's very upset because they're going to get him for accidentally killing Luna, Ginny, and Neville. And they march in, and you picture the doors, and Neville walks in, and he's like, sorry, I'm late! And, he, <laughs> <laughs> and everyone starts cheering, and Dean Thomas is like, yay! Even though he's not there, but I'm picturing him. <laughs> and then Snape stands up with his hands over his head, and you know, never mind, he would be growling. Anakis is just waving down, like, hey, look, well, the two. You know what I like about this fic? What's that? Um, and it happens, that it's in Chapter 6, the scene that I think is particularly, it's like a turning point. Uh, as I understand it, they've just gotten away from the werewolves, I think, that were in the forest. Was it werewolves? They run and away from the werewolves straight into the acromantulas. Neville starts off this fic just sort of going, oh, no, and, and they're throwing together all these plans. They throw together a plan to get the sword and, and whatever, and Neville's still basically just floundering, and basically Ginny sort of sits him down at this point and says, this is the plan. Harry, Ron, and Hermione might not make it, and then our hopes rest on you. So I'm watching out for you because if my boyfriend dies, you're our last hope. She's talked and to Dumbledore's so, portrait while they were stealing things yeah. from his office. And so I love how Neville turns, that's at the point where he sort of starts turning. He's like, okay, this is serious. I've got to do this and he's like okay I've got to do this for Harry because he has all the loyalty for Harry and and whatever but it's I think that's the point at which he starts to turn around and becomes the person and it makes a lot of sense to me that when Harry says to him okay you have to kill the snake Neville's just like yep no problem because I always kind of thought in Deathly Hallows I know that he's loyal to Harry but I think this gives us a journey about how he got to that point where he would just do whatever sort of Harry asked him because he's gone through all this growth and I think yeah because the first time you see him walking out of that portrait at the hog's head he's a different person than the character who and yeah, and it's like, that, yeah, and I love how this fic really gives good background and explanations for, for how Neville got, got to be that way. Yeah, his conversation with Ginny back in Chapter 1 or Chapter 2, where he basically says that when he fights, he becomes this screaming lunatic, and Ginny says that that's the real you that's been basically neglected for so many years that once it gets out, it, I would scream too. And when we obviously, you know, we were joking earlier, but but Luna is able to, you know, harness, not it's not a spell, but she's able to harness her magic and use her magic without a wand and Neville is able to harness himself who he is his magical component his soul really and he's able to use it to save himself and Ginny and Luna and the power of it is is visualized through light it becomes as bright as a supernova and you know as as the as the spiders are destroying the werewolves and, and you know the, and, the, and, the, and the and the forest is essentially coming apart he saves everyone because of who he is his power and he is 
is powerful wizard and mm-hmm. like moments like and that. And this is the first time he really believes that he's yeah. really found yeah. that power in yeah, himself. And, and it's such a great moment because it could be so easily overdone. I mean, how many stories have we read where Harry is so powerful? He like parts the sky. It's the joke. I have. He breaks the earth into half and Dumbledore is like, Oh my. <laughs> and you know, it, it, and this one, he basically lights the forest on fire and Ginny and Ginny are cuddled up there next to him. And he, he, but he, he saves them all. At this point, he's got that confidence now that I don't think he ever really had before. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, that's another scene where the way that it ends off saves it from being overdone right. because Neville having spent that much magic, he's sweating and shaking to do that. And he great, grows this giant dome of briars, basically, and he passes out for ten hours. And that makes sense, that it would be draining to do something like that. But yeah. he's found out that it's something he can do. Yeah. I mean, I'm really interested to see where it goes, because we know how the story ends, but I really want to get to the point where, you know, Neville's laying on the front lawn of Hogwarts, and Voldemort's over him, and the hat's on his head, and I, I want to see how he gets to, to be the guy at the end, because I've never read a story, like I said before, from his perspective, but he's such a great character, and he's one of my favorites from, from the canon itself, just because he's such a good guy. That I'm really, I think fan fiction did a really good job so far. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. So any other final thoughts yep. now? I'm no. definitely looking forward to the seeing the ride, basically. How we get from here to there. Jen is a genius. Jen too? <laughs> yeah. As we close out our podcast this evening, can we please have a moment of silence for Jen too? <laughs> you know what? It's sad that, that we're sharing this moment in, in, in honor of our good friend Gentoo without her here. Perhaps we should call her. <laughs> I don't think she's here anymore, isn't she, you know, occupied? I have her cell. <laughs> yeah, that'll go down real well. <laughs> that if they're still popping popcorn, it could work. There are two options. She will answer or will go to voicemail. If she answers, there are two options. She'll answer because she's making popcorn, or she'll answer doing something else. <laughs> she's not going to answer. She's doing something else. Honey, it's our 15th wedding anniversary. Oh, holy God. There might be more to this than meets the eye. Please join me. And like <laughs> Professor Sprout, I'm afraid she'll take out my kneecaps. Like Melinda Leo to Harry, that is correct. She will reductio his kneecaps. But you know what? That woman loves Harry so much that you know it's moving. Really, <laughs> I hate to see what she does to the characters she doesn't like. Then uh, they get eaten by werewolves. <laughs> Blood splattering on the wall. <laughs> Either that or ignored. Who's coming next week to the podcast to talk about the next bit? Let's look and see who we have for next week. We have me. We have Keza, who's not the sex fill-in. She's actually there. <laughs> <laughs> that I'm sounds not. terrible. I'm the sex fill-in now. <laughs> Gender quota? I don't know. I took a quiz on Facebook. Which Star Trek character are you? And I came out Uhura, and I'm like, right, I'm the token chick. (laughs) No, now you're the one who's getting on with Spock. Thank you, very much. For seven years. (laughs) Who's in next week? Welcome back to Butterfit Weekly, everybody. I'm Rena. I'm Scott. Mike. 
I'm ten. Then we're doing nine weeks on Psychic Circle. Then In Blood Only. <laughs> I'm looking Three. forward to doing In Blood Only. The Different. second podcast, I am so happy because both Ryan and Gen 2 are on, and I've been looking forward for like months for the two of them on that particular podcast. Well, I'm going to be there too. And, and Kessa too. I didn't mean to leave you out, Kessa. No, no, I'm just I'm excited to watch what's going to happen now. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> That podcast is going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, we have to get out of here because Kezza needs to eat. So with that, have a great night, everybody. And we'll see you back next week. Good night. Good night. So hold on to the wonder that those books brought to our lives. Keep each other safe. Keep faith. Good night. Cast the Next Generation. I'm Sue. I'm Kayla. I'm Kelly. And I'm Scott. The beginning of Greater Than Gravity Part 2 starts with the same quote that was at the beginning of the first one. Mm-hmm. But the premise of this one is that Audrey is taking her first visit to Diagon Alley. Yay. Having us galore by some old school friends and Weasleys, of course. That's in the summary. Right. And then the author's note is the same as the, uh, the first one. Right. So we meet our intrepid duo back on the busy streets, sidewalks of London. Getting bumped into again. Yes. She, she's a magnet for people. They seem to just want to... Bump into her all over the place. All over the place, yeah. <laughs> Poor girl. We're trying to keep up with Percy. <laughs> yeah. He's taking her someplace special. One of his places, he said. But he wouldn't mm. tell her where. And she's a little confused that they're just walking through ordinary London to get there. But Yeah. Because the first time he was going to take her to one of his places, they went to the borough, and he had apparated them there. This was probably right after the end of the first right. part. That would have been quite something, I think. I'm thinking that this is probably a day or two later. Mm-hmm. Or later that week, yeah. Yeah. So they're, <laughs> so they're walking, and, and she's thinking about going to the borough and all the things that, you know, how they got there, and she's... Maybe Molly. And that's yeah. the part that I think... We, it would have been fun to see just to uh, well see Molly react to see her and Arthur mm-hmm. react to the collab, but yeah, you know. <laughs> well, Molly would have been thrilled. Yeah. Percy brought home a girl, <laughs> and Dad would have been thrilled because Percy brought home a Muggle. Cola. Yeah, planning the wedding already. The minute Apparently. they appeared outside the garden, Molly was planning the wedding. Are you kidding? Mm-hmm. You know, I can still I can see this because apparition seems to be a a fairly you know chest crushing, uncomfortable. I'm gonna say maybe a little bit of a bumpy ride, and so by the that. time the cola gets there and Arthur opens the first one, 
It's going to spray <gasps> everywhere. Oh, dear. Well, that be... I didn't even think of that. You and know, then you know sure. she's going to have to open them all just to see it. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I bet you he'd do it again just to see it do it again, like explode again. And there'd be one <gasps> where it didn't work, and then he'd have to shake up all the other ones. Just, to begin with. <laughs> just like a little kid with his tongue sticking out. The whole inside of the shed would be covered with sticky syrup. <laughs> you should put a Mentos in it. Have you Have you ever seen that happen? Oh, yeah. That's cool. <laughs> my my guess is he probably didn't get much to drink. Uh, you know, maybe maybe toward the last few, because I can see him with a six pack. You know, sticking <laughs> his tongue out trying to catch some while it's going out. Oh my! Oh, so we have um, so they're going to Diagon Alley. And, well, she was also fascinated by the fact that the knitting needles were knitting the scarf all by themselves. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, yes, <laughs> which is another sword in the stone thing. Yep. So. Audrey's fairly distracted, and all she hears is Percy say, which is why you should stick close. And she's like, what? And so he says that he's not entirely sure if she's going to be able to see where they're going. He's never really done this with a muggle before. And so she needs to really stick close to him. I can't believe that he's not holding her hand. Bumping into her left and right and stuff like that. And he should be kind of walking with her. He does a little bit later, though. Protecting her with his body, but... I'm sure he would be, yeah. While they're walking along, she's trying to keep her focus ahead and seeing what could appear normal and what not. And the closer that they're coming to it, um, she's starting to notice that, well, first her eyes settle on a bookshop, a next shop down the street that was sunken into bed. Between the two shops, she actually gets to notice the leaky cauldron. Yep. Mm-hmm. That's really that's cool. When, that's after she's... Um, he's taken her hand because right. at first he can't see anything that looks odd. So he reaches out and grabs her hand and she checks that it is actually Percy's hand. Which is, <laughs> mm-hmm. And then yeah. she sees it and there's no longer, and the people aren't, in, aren't bumping into her anymore. She suddenly wonders if anyone else could even see it and highly doubted it. You know, Percy right. did warn her after all. So they go through the door and they go into the pub and it's a whole lot older looking than any of the shops along the street. Yeah, anything she's ever seen. Yeah. Does anybody else get a picture that it's probably a lot cleaner now that Tana's running it than Tom? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Especially if it's the Tom from movie three. Oh God! Yeah. Much back, Tom. <laughs> so then we bump into Apple. Well, first we start with Hannah. It, I'm sorry. I hearken back to the original Peon cast with Hannah actually cleaning the bar and. Uh, yes. yeah, she greets him afternoon, Mr. Weasley. So very formally, and uh, shopkeeper's and manners. Yes, Neville. Neville. And he greets much more informally. Percy. And so Audrey can figure out that obviously he does know this guy because he said that, and then he actually Percy actually stopped. So. Mm-hmm. And I guess Neville's all dressed up in a sweater vest and a tie, which I kind of. Liked and he's seen on a stool and that's pretty nevilish. That's like yeah, but still it's so cute. I, I'm gonna guess that this is probably a weekend, but no, he just finished his first year. Yeah, I just yeah, he just yeah. finished his first year. Well, he's reading the essays that he had assigned to them during the summer, but but he's also talking I, about I know, starting again. So I'm kind of confused here. Oh, I see. Yeah. These are his versions of those essays. There, I'm sorry. Say that again. He's gone through and worked up what the essays should be like, and he's going to see if they've included all the important points. Okay. That's the end, the last sentence in that paragraph there. You know, to see, see if they, if they oh. included all 
things, the that, important I included. things that I included. Okay. Then Audrey sees a page. Mimbleus, Mimbletonia, and their owners as the relationships grow <laughs> with the cats. <laughs> Yeah. And, and his teacup is sitting there perfectly normal, but the spoon is stirring, stirring itself. Is that one of the funniest so, things that I remember in in the first movie? I want to say it was the first time that we go into the leaky cauldron, and there's somebody sitting there reading a book, and he's right. swirling his finger it? around, and the spoon mm-hmm. is stirring. Did you see the book he was reading? He's reading no. Stephen Hawking's A Brief History of Time. <laughs> yes, really. <laughs> so we go on, and we've got. Um, I have a problem with Percy right here. Okay, me too. He did not introduce. Oh, I know. No, he didn't. <laughs> I can't I believe he didn't do that. that. Like, especially with Percy. someone like Neville, you think, and it being your girlfriend, you would remember your manners. He explains you know? to her who that was. Right, but he doesn't tell doesn't Neville know. who it was. Mm-hmm. Okay. But I mean, he wasn't a particular close friend of Percy's. He's just a kid that he knew who was that's, that's in true. his brother's ear. He's in Ron's ear. I don't know. But anyhow, they head out the door and into the alley and counts the bricks and does whatever to get it open. And she gets her first view of Agadal. Yeah, he counts the wall and then he taps the brick and then the brick opens. Okay. I was like, I'm missing that part and it's right in the middle of the page so I can yeah. see. Okay. I'm glad that they used the book version of that rather than taking the first movies thing because oh, yeah. I've seen a few fics where they write it as it was on the screen, which isn't actually how right. the book I got had confused it. there. I was thinking the movie version thinking it was the book version. I'm like, why are they only tapping it three times? You have to find the right brick and then you just tap that one. Right. I think it's cute, though, because before they had left, Neville, as they were leaving, he was saying how he wanted Percy to try to trick George into eating a canary cream for him, if he can manage it. (laughs) Right. Because Neville was the first one tricked into eating them. Yes, he was. (laughs) He was always tricked into eating them. So now they're in Diagon Alley, and she's walking through, and she's seeing all these different things. that so jealous. And she's yeah, she's goggling like he was in the in the underground. She's probably a lot more than he was. But. Yeah, yeah, because he was trying not can just see him. He's sort of going through as he would because this is ordinary stuff, you know. And then he realizes that she's paused half a block back, still staring at stuff. And she's yeah. looking at what is she staring at? She's staring at a broomstick. <laughs> That's so cool. I is seeing it. You always just think of like the first time when Harry sees the alley. It's just like you could not have enough eyes to get everything in. I know. Oh yeah. All the little details. Trying to look in every direction at once. Like Scott said, I can just see Percy's just strolling along, you know, and and she's just like stopping every few seconds to see what's next. She's staring at the broom through the window. And Percy realized that she was no longer following him. She's like, Percy, do they sell real flying broomsticks in here? And she's completely in awe. And you're like, yeah, yeah, they do. <laughs> no, he, he really doesn't want to go in because the, the, the it'll be packed. Mm-hmm. Of course, she's dating the one brother who's never Quidditch player. <laughs> right? <laughs> I think it's funny that, that the one that's in the window is the new Nimbus. That is funny. <laughs> is it really? Yeah. Yeah. All these Quidditch stars are in town and signing autographs and stuff. And she's, he's like, okay, we can go in, but let's stay over here, away from all the crazy people over there. Right. Quite work that way. <laughs> no. And so all of a sudden, Percy had heard a sh- 
shout of Weasley from across the room, and a man comes jumping over a table and not kind of just brushing <laughs> off his. All the fans. Good old Oliver Wood. Yes, Oliver. Oliver, (laughs) Oliver. I I guess was in Percy's ear. I I never actually thought of that, but he would be. Yeah, he was. He seems pretty excited to have seen him, too. I think Mm -hmm. it's funny that we have the wall full of small golden golf balls. (laughs) 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 Not quite, but close, you know. (laughs) People are are asking for his autograph. He's getting hugs, and he's just, you know, he says, it's always a bit weird when they just hug you like that. <laughs> I can't imagine. <laughs> can't imagine. <laughs> and he's like, Percy, what are you doing in here? This is not the kind of place that I imagine you would come to. Mm-hmm. And so... He takes him to show him the best broomstick, because obviously he must be shopping for brooms. And then Oliver wants an introduction. Yeah. He's not going to wait for Percy. We, we already know Percy doesn't know how to introduce people. So. Yeah. Percy said, this is Audrey, my girlfriend. He's like, yeah, well, I figure that purse. She's not your mom or your sister. I can't think of any other girl that could stand you. Poor <laughs> <laughs> <Aww>. <laughs> And we hear that Ginny's been doing well at her Quidditch endeavors herself. Yeah, she's got five <laughs> goals past him. That's pretty Oliver's, good. Yeah, Oliver's kicking himself for not taking her back when she's at Hogwarts and using her and the team. So Audrey says, you know, are you a goalie? Mm-hmm. And, and Oliver's like, you uh, don't know who I am? <laughs> yeah, sure I am. I sure am a goalie, uh-huh. <laughs> she doesn't know who I am, does she? <laughs> Which is new to him after these several years of being a professional Quidditch guy, I guess. Everybody knows who he is. And so, of course, then he hits on Audrey. That's so funny. If you really want questions answered, ask me. (laughs) It's like, oh, boy. Uh, Don't ask Percy. He doesn't know what he's talking about. (laughs) Wood's head's gotten a little bit too big. No, no, no. He was was, always teasing. He was teasing. It's like, hey, you don't want to hang out with him? You can hang out with me. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, they eventually escape the Quidditch store and wander through and see some of the other major shops. I guess they don't actually go into them, mm-hmm. but they make it to Weasley's Wizard Weasels. Yay! Which is yeah. also packed. Uh-huh. Talk about jealous. I'd love to be in there. George just so. absolutely thrilled to meet her. She can immediately tell who he is because apparently he's the only person older than like 14 and has exactly the same hair color as Percy. Right. right. <laughs> yeah. And he takes her immediately over to the muggle magic trick sets. Not real magic, just sleight of hand. <laughs> I like the part where he had given, he shoved her the small box with a deck of cards and instructions because she doesn't quite really know how to play card games either, but he wants her to learn and he's like, practice and become the master and then you'll be able to do magic that even I can't. And when I had read it, I was just like, oh, that's kind of cute. It was a really nice gesture, I thought. Like, yeah. he's trying to include her in their world and everything. And well, and he can't get them to work. Mm-hmm. Right. He can't get oh. them to work, so he wants her to, to do them so she can yeah. get them to work. <laughs> and, yeah, and then probably you know, teach him. Yeah, yes. and so she doesn't feel so inferior or anything like that. I like their but, banter at this point, though. Don't mind Percy. Sometimes, sometimes he forgets. Most of us didn't use the rules as a bedtime story. And <laughs> yeah. yeah, you just had Mum read you Babbity Rabbity three times a night. <laughs> what can I say? Babbity is so cunning. She speaks to my soul. 
I thought Percy had been kind of dim-witted there. It's like, technically she wouldn't be doing real magic, George. And I'm just like, you missed that one, buddy. Yeah, well, you know. Yeah, well. Yeah. yeah. That was cute. And then, you know, Percy, how come you haven't been around to visit? And Percy's like, well, I've been working. You work too much, Percy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, what are you doing here, George? I consider this having fun and getting paid at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. So now we're going to go meet for George. Come now on we're, back. We're going to go meet Fred. Fred. Yeah. And my thought was, when was this written? Well, and she, the author wrote it after yeah. Deathly Hallows. Mm-hmm. It was written after Deathly Hallows because the very next line says, Percy, didn't you say your brother Fred died a few years ago? And, and then no, she's like, he's not going to be a ghost. Apparently. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Audrey, I know you've seen a, a number of pretty different things in the past few days. And she's like, I'm not going to walk into a room and see a ghost. Am I, Percy? And he's like, no, but um, just wait. <laughs> and just be open-minded and hold my hand. Yeah, I like this. Uh, he had a portrait done. Fred, <laughs> this is Audrey. Audrey, is it? <laughs> mm-hmm. That would be weird to see the, fir- the first ever time you had a portrait talk to you yeah yeah, oh, yeah. Well, and you know when she first walks in she thinks it's a mirror mm-hmm. until george moves and then she realizes that it's not a mirror and he has both ears and george doesn't and then fred is like george why didn't you tell me about audrey <laughs> he's like i wanted to surprise you didn't i 20 years you're always right next to me no chance for secrets finally a joke to be had on you my friend <laughs> he's like Fine, time to play a joke on me. Maybe I'll hide behind the sofa one day and you can wonder where I've gone off to. Well, now you've gone gone and told me where you're you're hiding. (laughs) Yeah. Ah, damn. (laughs) And then, forgive me, miss. You seem very intrigued to see me. And she's like, oh, I've been staring. Whoops. She says, I'm not used to seeing things like this. Yeah, really. (laughs) And then he's like, are you... A muggle? And she's like, I am. And she's, he's like, well, hello, I'm Fred Weasley. How do you like my shop? <laughs> mm-hmm. oh, she's still pretty dumbfounded. And she's like, how is this even possible? Only and one word for it. Magic. magic. <laughs> yeah. And so then Fred approves of her. Yes. And we have more Baxter. That's Lots funny. Not, Percy, you had to go to Muggle London to find a date? <laughs> Of course he did. Everyone in his age went to Hogwarts and they already knew him too well. I'm just like, oh, why do they all keep picking on him in front of Percy? Yeah. Yeah, well, they always do that to him. They're his brothers. They're entitled. Fred and George. Yeah. And then they go for ice cream. No, it's the fun part. Before that, I guess she had still been staring and he's all. (laughs) Fancy a stock. Pardon me, miss. He's chuckling and looking back at her and he's like, but you're standing incredibly close and staring. Fancy a snog? <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Well, Hello, that's, the twins. that's Fred. I don't think that would work very well with a portrait. No, but, uh, you know. It doesn't seem... Yeah. It's Fred. It's Fred, it yeah. And then they go for ice cream. So they have a little talk of, uh, about Fortescue. <laughs> You'll notice that he says, sometime during the war, and... Yeah. You don't get her asking, what war? So he must have said something about that before. He must have explained. Well, and, and I think she did because he explained that Fred had died. So well, she, she might have seen pictures of his family at the, right, the borough. Because yeah. yeah. she did see the moving photos at the borough. So right. it's not quite as shocking to meet the portrait as it could be, I guess. But mm-hmm. still, they are different. I wonder if the clock would have still been up and... 
kind of yeah, I don't know. I think so. I guess it would have. They might have taken Fred's hand down, I suppose. But So they're eating their ice cream, and she's drinking all of this in. He's laughing because it's like watching Fred and George the first time they visited Zonko's. Then she wants to know, do yeah. they really sell wands here? She's still taking everything in, but then Percy wants to talk about... He talks about Fred. You miss him, don't you? Today was only the actually the second time that I've seen him since George had the portrait idea. Mm-hmm. So it's like, oh. Yeah, that would be a little weird. Oh, yeah. Even for wizards, just to well, have that. They, they have that in the, the, the headmasters. Yeah, the mm-hmm. headmasters mm-hmm. all do. But, I mean, in most cases, the headmasters don't have a large group of family and friends still around. Because right. they're all... Old. They've been headmaster for some time. I mean, yeah. I'm sure it would be disconcerting for McGonagall being in the headmaster's office with mm-hmm. Dumbledore's portrait behind her shoulder, but... Yeah. He's only had it for a short period of time. Right. Because it says, Ron told me about a year ago that George was thinking of having the portrait done. I don't know whose idea it was to wait, though. They might have had just decided it would be smart to wait until George needed a partner again. Now it's like the original minds are back. Red can't physically help, of course, so George still gets help here and there. But the brainstorming, I'm sure, still happens all between them. The two of them in the office, same as it always did. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was mm-hmm. kind of cool. It's too bad that Fred can't help with the potion work because Fred was always a bit better at potions. Right. He, yeah. He never that really sort of details kind of neat. Yeah. What he was doing, but he always managed to concoct whatever it was, even if he was just messing around. So they talk he, about the different sides. Most wars have two sides: the good side and the bad side. Mm-hmm. And this one had three. There was the bad side, and then there was the good side. There was the good side that didn't want to believe it. And then the good side that did believe it and was trying to fight the bad side. So, you know, it was kind of like Switzerland, you know. (laughs) And he's admitting to her how he feels about all of that, having been ignoring it for two years or however long it was. Yeah, he's ashamed to admit that he was on the wrong side for a while. Well, for most of the war. Right. Yeah. And probably still have, you know, still have a lot of effect even after the war when everything was said and done, you know, and getting reacquainted with his family and everything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like the comment about Fred. Is that he accepted me back right away. Oh, did he really? Well, he called me a moron <laughs> first. <laughs> yeah, that's I that. love that part in the book, too. I can't remember what the line is, but it's like, I've been a fool. Yes, you have. Welcome back. <laughs> but, or they gave him like a long list. And it's like, and a moron and an idiot and a ministry loving something. <laughs> but I love that part. So that's just about the end of the fic. It does end here where they were talking about the sides. And yeah. she tells him, regrettable as they may be now, those choices you made were not the end of you. Your family knows that. They love you. And that's yeah. the end of the fic. Is the author planning to write more? I don't or? know. Um, I thought these two pieces, I liked them. They were cute. Mm-hmm. Um, gives yeah. us a little bit of an insight as to kind of when Percy met Audrey kind of thing. I thought it was well written. And it kept mm-hmm. in canon, and, and I, mm-hmm. I liked it. Thumbs up. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting idea, because we don't know whether Audrey is a muggle or a half-blood or what exactly. But um, mm-hmm. this it's works fun. quite yeah. well. Mm-hmm. It's fun to see this side, I guess, and people use their imagination, especially when they use it well in this way, I think, too. Just like Kelly had said, keeping up with canon and everything and 
and flowing so well. And I really liked the quote at the beginning with the sword and the stone because I hadn't even thought of that movie in years, but that was one of my favorite, I think, as a kid. And so many memories of that one. So It applies to Percy and Audrey and their feelings for each other and then also comes up in that being her favorite fairy tale and several other times through the whole thing. I really liked this because I liked seeing the the whole idea of how Audrey could have met Percy. And right. I thought it's really well thought out. And, you know, her reactions to Errol showing up and, and all that stuff was right on. And then the second one where they go into Diagon Alley and meet with Fred. I love the cameos, the different people that they meet up with and different mm-hmm. stuff. So I I really liked this a lot. And look, it didn't mention Harry Potter one time. Wow. Nope. <laughs> it's true. It's pretty I never even thought of that, but they didn't. Nope, Especially not once. And they do. That's pretty impressive. <laughs> Especially with who? Ginny. Because usually one, the other. I don't know. Did we meet Ginny? Yes. Well, we yeah. didn't meet Ron either because he was off training. Yeah. Right. Which, which, which gives us him. another timestamp. If the Aura program is supposed to be three years... And Ron worked at the shop for a year or two. We're still within three or four years of the end of the war. Yep. Mm-hmm. So I like some of the other things that she adds. That uh, like what happened with Fortescue's shop. <laughs> that he himself isn't actually there anymore, but they rebuilt it and named it after him again in his memory. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really liked that part too. In general, I think the the first one works better as a standalone, but um, mm-hmm. the second one is definitely a good continuation of the universe, the story. And um, Yeah, the only problem I have with the second one is that it ends rather abruptly. Mm-hmm. That's the only problem I had with it. It would be a little bit weird to try and read the second one just by itself, but right. reading it this way with the first one and then the second one, it works just fine. And with that, we're going to wrap this up. So, good night, everybody. Good night. Good night. Bye.